Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, a special bonus episode. And for this bonus episode, we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to cover a few movies here, at least two. I think two that we know of. Now, as always, I'm John Negroni. You know me, film editor for In Between Drafts and your second favorite co-host of the Cinemaholics podcast. But uh, of course, we have to bring on your third favorite co-host of Cinemaholics. He is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's Will Ashton. What up? What up? Will Ashton. What are we talking about this? Well, not this week, because we already had our like anniversary episode. It ain't Cinemaholics, yeah. so Cinemaholics. But That's this is right. where we actually talk about the movies. Yeah. So we have, uh, yeah, like you said, we didn't review anything in this most recent episode, even though we uh, have plenty of films we have both seen and could review. Yeah, it literally was like the week where I think the most amount of movies came out. Yes, or right? at least one of the weeks, yeah. But uh, two of the most high-profile films that have just come out in the last week or two that we have both seen are Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, colon, A Knives Out Mystery, I believe that's the subtitle. Mm-hmm. That's correct, uh, you nailed it. And then the second film we're going to be discussing is Steven Spielberg's Fablements. Yeah, you know, two very different movies, of course, but we had to narrow it. We had to narrow it down somehow. Now, plenty of other movies we could have talked about that we both. Well, actually, we, not that we both have seen because you haven't seen Strange World, the latest Disney movie. Um, and I don't know if you still plan to anytime soon. I mean, it's probably going to be in Disney Plus by the end of the sentence. But yeah, uh, Strange World, big Disney movie in theory sure <laughs> but a huge box office bomb as it turns out yeah i mean unfortunately it seems like uh, a decent number of recent films have not taken the box office by storm yeah including the fable yeah, the fablemans which you know released on a decent amount of theaters i mean not not super wide but uh, the theaters that it did pop up in it i don't think it really took off but i think the difference is the fablemans has word season kind of at its wings because it's the kind of movie where you do that slow rollout. Yeah. Okay. You don't expect it to make that much the opening weekend, but it's probably going to be in theaters until shoot going through February well, because of the Oscars and all that. And it, it's pretty much, I think are going to be a shoe in for some nominations at least. That would be the plan except that universal, I believe today announced that they're going to be putting it on VOD and then shortly thereafter on Peacock. Starting in December. They did see that, but they did that last award season too, and they still put the stuff in theaters because it sure. still has that boost. I think because like a lot of people still want to go to the theater and because, I mean, who do you know that has a Peacock account? Not me. That is true. I guess that did kind of play to uh, Halloween Kills favor last year where everyone was kind of freaking out like, oh, is this going to hurt its box office? And it didn't seemingly at all. I don't know how Halloween Ends did, but. Because I think that's uh, that's the yeah. thing. These are the kinds of movies where, I mean, not not Halloween Kills necessarily, but I know that these award season movies tend to appeal to an older demographic, a demographic that doesn't do streaming as much. A lot of them haven't even cut the cord, the cable cord. A lot of them are still going to the theater because going to the theater is a fun thing to do. You know, go with the your spouse, your partner, your buddy, or whatever. And if Fablemans does kind of suit that, Strange World is a totally different story. Strange World is like. You got your opening weekend, and if it's not popping off, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna do the Encanto thing. You're gonna be, I mean, people pretend like Encanto was like this big success. It wasn't. Encanto made very little in theaters. It it didn't start to gain some momentum, some buzz, and pop culture impact until it hit Disney Plus. So, I don't think that's gonna happen with Strange World necessarily because Strange World is very strange uh, as a Disney movie. I think it's gonna be relegated forever to the 
you know, the pantheon of Disney's forgotten action blockbuster movies that they've tried many times to get right in the past. Uh, in terms of like get right, like strike a chord with audiences and be a big success. Every time they try to like cater more to boys and preteens, they try to do things like Atlantis, Treasure Planet. It doesn't tend to work very well. But, you know, they do have Tarzan. So that's they it. They okay. do have Tarzan, I suppose. That is true. And Princess and the Frog. And, no, I was kidding. But uh, Wreck-It Ralph, you know, Wreck-It Ralph is actually one of the exceptions in terms mm-hmm. of like Male? catering to boys. Yeah. Uh, teenage boys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, because if you're looking at uh, what, like Treasure Plan, I think you already mentioned, but Atlantis and Chicken Run, uh, they're kind of more boy centric films, which a lot of them, uh, not to generalize, but a lot of the more male centric animated Disney films of the 21st century have been uh, lesser than some of the more female led films. Uh, like you said, with the exception of Wreck It Ralph. And I would say <laughs> yeah, to some extent, uh, Atlantis, which a film I would vouch for, as well as uh, Emperor's New Groove, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. Can't leave out Emperor's New Groove. But anyway, it is kind of weird. Yeah, that we're not talking about the big Disney movie. But I mean, I have seen it and I think it's pretty mediocre, honestly. Um, I, I wasn't a huge fan of Strange World. Uh, and uh, you haven't seen it. And I, I certainly wasn't like pushing you, like nudging you like, oh, it will, please, please, we gotta for the pocket. I mean, I, it really... Considering the breadth of everything else we could cover, it just seems pretty low on my list of like interesting conversations. Like it's a pretty cut and dry kind of situation where, yeah, I mean, if you watch the trailer and you're really interested, if you're just like ride or die for Disney, ride or Disney, then just go check it out, whatever. But yeah, it's not not one that I think we need to dissect. Now there there are all manner of movies that I've been watching lately. My brain's a little fried, well, with all these screeners, but and I still have plenty to go. I mean, I I got White Noise and Pinocchio and. Man, I can't even keep this stuff straight. Yeah, I know you want me to watch Armageddon time uh, before you know the year ends, I guess. Uh, lots of stuff. But I know one that you and I have seen that we're probably going to talk about on maybe the next episode of the show, or one of the next bonuses, is After Sun, the A24 film. That's coming up. I, I do want to talk about that. Coming up, I believe it's already in theaters, or at least I saw in theaters. No, I mean, coming up, like our episode. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah no, we have both seen that. We've also both seen... Women talking. Mm-hmm. Which I definitely, I don't know if I even want to, uh, I'm not writing worth. a review for women talking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's worth discussing. I think, should we just do one with that? And she said, just to kind of add to our confusion to these two plan B, <laughs> do we have to? uh, you know, movies that have very similar titles. Listeners write in. If you are aching for John and will to talk about, she said, and women talking i just feel so uncomfortable because they're just kind of these movies that are, i feel like are kind of out of our wheelhouse is uh, a well, couple of guys here we but could uh, always, you know, obviously yeah we could bring on a guest but, you know yeah we could always bring on a guest there's no there's nothing in the rule book that says we can't have a guest <laughs> yeah or just do uh, a ladies night episode that's always fun um that said i do want to i do want to talk about lady chatterley's lover at some point the the netflix movie i did see that Oh yeah, and that comes out uh, on Netflix uh, this Friday, right? This Might Friday. already be on Netflix by the time this episode comes out. That's true. That's true. Well, it depends on when we're able to get this out, but we'll see. Um, lots of stuff coming up. Lots of stuff. I know I won't be got to talk about the whale. Uh, hopefully, we can talk about bones and all at some point. You were going to watch it, but you know things didn't work out for reasons. 
and uh, Puss in Boots: The Last Wish. I mean, we just it, it, December is going to be a month. It's there's there's some stuff we got to get to. Sure. Yeah, I don't even know where you land on uh, Puss in Boots. I have an idea where you land on uh, Bones and All and The Whale, but I feel Puss- like I talked to you about. Puss in Boots a little well, bit. A little week. bit. You were kind of you were being critical the the beginning of the film, but it kind well, of. Well, no, I think I told you. I, look, the critics are coming out and acting like Puss in Boots: The Last Wish is like this big achievement in sure. animated movie history I, or something. I'm seeing like A's and A pluses, and I'm uh-huh. like, guys, 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 no, it's like, sure. not that good. It's it it's it's okay. It's, I mean, it's you know, it has its moments. Sure. I think but this was, is coming from a Puss in Boots despiser, as many people a know. A denier of Puss in Boots, I guess you could say. Um, it's true. I saw IGN. I'm not a fan of that character. Yeah, when you can hear all about that on the most recent episode of An Ogre, Toast Ogre, mm-hmm. which has John on as a guest star. Very true. Um, Very true. But in any case, I think it was IGN that had in their, I believe, 9 out of 10 review for Puss in Boots, colon, The Last Wish. That is, which I think is just bonkers like but you know what more power to people that is to me that is not a nine out of ten movie (laughs) at all it's a seven you know which is good but it's a seven maybe a 7.5 you catch me on a good day you know what i was gonna say though is that they uh were quoted as saying that is the logan of the shrek franchise which very much entices my interest i swear you just add a little bit of existential dread to a movie it can be the most surface level superficial addition to your script and people act like you have just cracked the screenwriting code. I don't get it. If you get it, please explain it because I'm in the wilderness here. But I mean, you know, yeah, you just add some existential dread to your family-friendly movie, and middle-aged critics around the world just uh, flock it. to it. Yeah, it's like adding it's like adding a grief metaphor to your horror movie. It's like oh, now it's elevated horror because. You know, grief. It's uh, you know, allegory Let's or some that. sort of uh, what parental allegory for a Pixar movie. You could say. Hmm. Oh, very much so. You know what's good about those with the Pixar movies, though, the sort of uh, the mentorship thing. I think the reason that works so consistently is because it is innate to the story in a way that I don't know. It's easy to relate to. You know, like like Finding Nemo. You Marlin got a little fish as a son. And that movie kind of nails the metaphor without like having to like use a bunch of indulgent symbols, you know? And, uh, I I don't know. I I think like, uh, Woody and Buzz, you know, competing for a child's heart, the space age and all that. That's a really good metaphor because it rings true. But then sometimes I see these horror movies where it's like, all right, the message is that she is upset that her husband died. And now a ghost is trying to kill her. And she misses her husband. And it's so sloppy. Like, it's that kind of stuff that kind of rubs me the wrong way. It's like, it's it, it's just adding, a me- it's like shoehorning the message instead of like really building it from the ground up. Midsummer does it right. Because Midsummer is like, it's about a breakup. And that's where the metaphor, it's, you can't, you, you can't just take the metaphor out because that's the movie. And sometimes I see these other like so-called elevated horror movies and you take the allegory out and the movie's functionally the same. So that's my little litmus test. Well, on that note, should we talk about uh, one of these movies or keep stalling? We got to peel some layers to a different topic. Sure. Right? Got to murder a few other hearts or something. I don't know. 
murder a few other hearts? I don't know, man. I just want to move on to Glass Onion. (laughs) Glass Onion? Oh, that's a great idea. Well, why don't you say so? Uh, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, new film from Ryan Johnson. We love Ryan Johnson over here on the Cinemaholics podcast. We've been shouting his praises uh, one movie after another. I think it's been two movies now since we started Cinemaholics. Of course, Star Wars The Last Jedi. I think that was uh, our first Star Wars movie review that you and I did one on Cinemaholics. Uh, one of our most popular episodes? Uh, of that era, for sure. Okay. Uh, I think we have since, you know, grown uh, past okay. The Last Jedi sort of download sphere, I think. But uh, yeah, that was a successful episode. We had a great conversation, of course. Maverick Hines, former co-host of the show. R.I.P. And uh, we also talked about Knives Out a couple years back yes, in we did. 2019. Yeah. Was that in the Abbey years or is that before Abbey? That was way before Abbey. Okay. It was a year before. Gotcha. Yeah. So that was just you and me. And uh, I don't even remember if we did a, uh, if we had a special guest. I'll double check. But uh, this, of course, Glass Onion is the sequel to Knives Out. Yes. Which, uh, you know, Knives Out was a Lionsgate release. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big success. Of- yeah, well exceeded the uh, their expectations. I, it was like a mid-budget film, I believe, in the thirty to forty million dollar range, budget-wise. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. It's a lean but movie, yeah. It made uh, well over three hundred million dollars, I think, worldwide. Uh, maybe that's international. I don't remember exactly the numbers. But yeah, I think you have it right. It was, uh, you know, coming out this year uh, at a year. I mean where uh, I feel like the box office was kind of looking a little bit more hopeful for audiences. Like Aurora original properties, like you said, Midsummer was a great example of such. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Knives Out, Uncut Jumps were these kind of smaller to mid-budget films that were really getting great critical and commercial success. Mm-hmm. Coming into the popular uh, pop culture awareness and... Sparking a lot of hope for not only the theater experience, but for cinema at large. And then obviously, uh, not long after 2019, we had the COVID-19 pandemic, which has been uh, causing quite a bit of doubt for the state of movies as it is, which makes it a kind of interesting uh, turn of events that Netflix decided to foot the bill for Knives Out 2 and 3. You know how much they paid for it? Wasn't it like four hundred million dollars? Yeah, yeah. That well, that's kind of split between what they estimated the movies would cost and then what they're paying Ryan Johnson and uh, Daniel Craig. Is that correct? Yeah, and I don't get it personally because that amount of money—that is an insane amount of money—and it makes sense if you're planning to do like a wide theatrical release of these movies. Well, now it looks like after Glass Onion did really well in only a handful of theaters in a week where it had a lot of competition and it was one of the few success stories in a per theater average. Now Netflix is, of course, looking at, oh yeah, maybe we'll do another theatrical rollout, even though it's going to be on Netflix too. And that'll be interesting to see how it's going to perform when it's also going to be on Netflix. I just, I don't get it. Why Netflix? Why would Netflix pay that much? Amazon, I 100% understand amazon has a a very solid consistent business model with this sort of thing it releases these movies in theaters usually balance between wide and limited release and then it puts it on its streaming service like six months later and like it's this thing that i just think that these streaming services 
in their efforts to sort of amplify and market their streaming services services above theaters, which theaters are a proven business model, at least in the sense where you're you're in the zone of actually getting a return on your budgets. You don't always do better than break even, but there is like a consistency there. Whereas with like streaming, who's who's getting Netflix who's buying a Netflix subscription because of knives out? Who is like looking at their Netflix and being like, well, I was gonna get I was gonna turn off my subscription, but then I saw Knives Out is on there. It makes no sense to me at all. Well, by Netflix standards, is it more about getting new subscribers or sustaining subscribers? Well, it's suppose it's theoretically both. But that's the thing. It's like Knives Out isn't going to keep you on the service. Who is looking at Knives Out? Because like Knives Out isn't that big. And even if it is, it's not going to have, it's a proven success story in theaters. How is it a proven success story? Like just license it for Netflix. Like they just put where the crawdads thing on Netflix. I honestly just, I just don't get it. Like it's, and it's annoying because I think like what it's leading to is like the studios continuing to learn the wrong lessons from movies and how they're doing at the box office. And for the streaming wars to continue just being this ridiculous, like competition between the execs who are pumping up the streaming services and the execs who do still believe in the theatrical model to whatever extent. And I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is we keep training people to not go to the theater because we're like, it's just going to be on Netflix. It's just going to be on Disney plus. That's a huge reason why strange world isn't doing anything right now. Like who's going to watch strange world. Who is going to watch Encanto? People know it's coming like in a couple of weeks. And so, like, I guess it's it's bumming me out because they're going to start losing money eventually if they aren't already. They probably already are. And it means, like, fewer good movies are going to get made. Period. End of story. And so, like, I want more movies like Glass Onion to come out. Glass Onion is a good movie. My audience enjoyed it a good, decent bit. But I tell you what, Will Ashton, do you, do you look at the future of movies and say, like, oh, yeah, we're, we're probably going to get another Glass Onion, uh, you know, fairly regularly? I doubt it. Well, we're getting at least one more. I know that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, uh, <good> point. <laughs> and then after that. <laughs> um, but after that, I don't know. I mean, I know Ryan Johnson said he would continue making them. It seems like Daniel Craig is fine with making more of them. I don't know if Netflix is going to foot the bill for more of them. Because I, I think what you're suggesting is that it, it's hard to figure out exactly what the uh, end goal is for Netflix. Because I was reading about uh, – there's an article this week from Variety they kind of broke down the theatrical rollout and what Netflix was kind of expecting from the film and how there's this sort of like this internal conflict uh, in the company as well as some conflict with the theater executives. Uh, no because, kidding. Yeah, because it seems like it's weird because they, they struck a deal with a lot of the main uh, theater chains, in this case being like Cinemark, Regal Cinemas, and AMCs, if I'm recalling correctly. And normally... Uh, Netflix movies do not go to those chain theaters. They usually, if they do go to theaters, they right. play in independent theaters or independent chains because uh, theaters or regional chains, right? Because AMC and nationwide uh, theater chains like those have been very vocal about like we don't like Netflix. Netflix we see as the death of our company. Like we yep. feel like if we start integrating Netflix movies into our theaters people are going to be less inclined to want to go see movies at our theater and just wait for them to go to Netflix. And I think, yeah. Can I say, put yourself in the shoes 
of a distributor. I know you have, you work at a theater these days. Like, you know, like the decision-making process for this. Think about it for a second. If I run a theater and you are Netflix trying to tell me that I need to put these two screens, these val- this valuable real estate, put your big Netflix movie on there. When I could be putting two other movies that are not Netflix affiliated, you're telling me to risk how much money I'm going to make as a theater that weekend because I'm putting in two movies that people might not show up to see because they know it's going to be on Netflix. That's your branding identity. And I think sometimes Netflix throws their weight around not really understanding how a lot of theater owners can't take risks like that because risks like that are kind of dumb. They're not all going to work out like Glass Onion, I don't think. Well, I think at the very least with this one, not to throw Netflix too many bones, but I think they were a little bit smarter in the sense that they did realize that, A, we can't just put this movie in theaters two weeks before it's going to go on Netflix. Like, it gave it like a month uh, between its you know theatrical release, just one week run, and when it's going to be on Netflix, which I believe is December 23rd, you know, only a few days before Christmas. So they gave it a healthy window before its streaming release, and I believe they said they would give uh, most of the profits or a healthy share of the profits to the theater as opposed to Netflix taking that money in. So I guess that was enough of an incentive for the theaters to want to play it. Also knowing that this would be, you know, a fairly crowd pleasing film considering the the success of the first movie and how much goodwill has continued to garner since it's theatrical release. Um, That's what makes it the exception, right? Is that knives out is the brand that is going to overshadow the Netflix brand because people know that Knives Out is a thing that exists outside of Netflix. This is not something they could have gotten away with for something like, I don't know, Project Power. Like, of course sure. not. Uh, but yeah, but, in terms of Knives Out, you do have some of that existing IP to like make people think like, oh, I saw the last Knives Out in theaters. Sure. And I think from Netflix standpoint, it I mean, outside of just being, uh, you know, from a really talented up and coming filmmaker, if that, if Ryan Johnson even is considered up and coming, I think he's pretty well established at this point. But, um, you know, from yeah, their he's a standpoint, seasoned yeah. filmmaker. He's been making films since the late 2000s. But from their standpoint, not only is uh, Knives Out a trusted brand such as it is at this point, but there is the uh, promise with a film like Last Onion where it's like it's old and new again. Like you're going to get the format that was established with the original uh, Knives Out movie, but you also are going to get something new. It's a totally new cast, totally new band of characters, and the opportunity for a totally new cast of A-list stars. And I just imagine the person they're walking in the Glass Onion and being like, all right, this is the one where they they go to like the Death on the Nile, right? And uh, it's Hercule Poirot, right? Okay, my joke is that yeah, I get you. we, of course, had this movie already, sort of. Uh, we had uh, Death on the Nile, which is Kind of the same format, isn't it? I mean, it's the same detective, but it's a different cast of characters and a new mystery. And of course, this is like an Agatha Christie thing that's lo- existed long before Ryan Johnson was doing his own sort of modern whodunit. Yeah, but I mean, the weird thing about so it, in the broad sense, like the term uh, in terms of a uh, star power in movies right now, there's this kind of weird thing where like. There's no. This is the big thing that Quentin Tarantino got in trouble for saying, which is basically true. Which is that there aren't really movie stars anymore. They're like movie characters that people go see. Like they don't go see exactly, Chris yeah. Evans movies. They they go see Captain America movies, right. or you know, and or you know they don't go see Robert Downey Jr. movies. They go see Iron Man movies. There was a um, conversation online about this in terms of like Hancock was like one of the last sort of like hugely successful 
blockbusters that was primarily built on A-list talent. I mean, the and last it kind of marks the end of that era. Yeah, I mean, the what the, the like two last big movie stars, I guess we have at this point are Tom Cruise and Denzel Washington. And Tom Cruise is primarily doing IP stuff, like it's Mission Impossible and most recently Top Gun. And then Denzel Washington, like even some of his more recent star vehicles haven't been doing as well as the the ones that came Yeah, I'm not sure if I buy that he's like, yeah, that kind of sort of people will just show up to the theater in the hundreds of millions. I mean, at one point, that was certainly the case. I mean, even if that was five or 10 years ago, that was the case. Was it? I mean, I'm looking at like Roman J and Israel. I'm looking at fences and. Well, that's when things kind of took a turn. But if you're looking at like flight and like movies, even going back to like 2012, 2014. Yeah. I mean, you can say the same thing about Tom Hanks then. I guess so. Yeah. You're kind of opening it up there, but I get what you're saying. But yeah, if, if we narrow it down a little bit more to like the action IP, which yes, Tom Cruise, a hundred percent is basically the last vestige of that. And Will Smith kind of, veered off of that uh, after Hancock because mm-hmm. things like After Earth came out and he started right. doing projects that were just, uh, you know, built different, I guess. But but uh, yeah, we're in a uh, different era. Anyway, what I was trying to lead up to is that I feel like Netflix strategy for this has been kind of interesting where they do seem to be kind of putting their chips on certain stars like Adam Sandler. Like they're just like people seem to if they see Adam Sandler on the banner, they're probably going to click it even if they don't watch the whole thing. Right. So they, you know, they put a lot of and they're using him for both their like mass appeal stuff and their award stuff. Hustle. Yeah. They won't shut up about hustle for the four year consideration crowd. Yeah. But on the other side of it is like the don't look up approach, which is just like, what if a movie didn't have just one star, but all the stars, every star you can think of. And they're all just here on this thing. Just click this button and you'll get to see all these stars in this movie. And I feel like last onion in subsequently knives out as a franchise kind of leads into that really well and i think that might have gone into their decision making where it's just like it's not only appealing in the sense that they can advertise like we have a news knives out movie it's all this stuff but it's like look at all these stars we got for this movie we got edward norton we got kate hudson we got leslie odom jr we got you know uh janelle monet we got all these people and you can see them all you know having fun dave batista uh all these people just at the click of a button or in this case they are, they they're not like you. oh my gosh dave batista they're like oh my gosh Drax. Sure. But does that make sense? Do you think that could it go makes sense? Into, and yeah. I'm glad you brought up Don't Look Up. I was going to bring it up too, uh, in terms of like that is an example of when Netflix did release one of these kinds of movies. In that case, it was this is the next thing from Adam McKay. Whoa. And they did release it in some theaters, not a lot, but they released it in some theaters last December. It was playing at an AMC in like my area last year, actually. Uh, I don't think it was playing at the Regal, so I don't, I don't think I, they had to deal with Regal at that point. I was going to say, it didn't play at any of the chain theaters, but it played at like five or it six theaters. It played at theaters. AMCs. Did it? Oh, yeah. I remember. Okay. I don't. It didn't play at any AMCs near me. I know that. It didn't play at all the AMCs. That's the thing. I think it played at like some of them. I think because of the you know, Bay Area, it probably was in like some Maybe. theaters like that in like New York. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I, I can't... Uh, uh, I can't say I know anything about that, but I still locally, they, the only movie it played in several theaters, certainly more so than uh, glass onion, but they're all either independent theaters or in like national or not national, sorry, regional chains. Uh, yeah, it didn't go to any, the major net, uh, nationwide chains. And I, I remember this is pretty noble glass onion for that uh, particular reason. I mean, it's not true because I, it was at the AMC. In in Livermore, California, 
I remember it was at the AMC in San Jose. Um, I saw it at an AMC. Uh, yeah, it, it was. But, uh, you know, maybe just like it wasn't nationwide, I doubt. Okay. But uh, you know how theory. much money it made, Washington? Uh, don't look up. Yeah. I have no idea because Netflix doesn't release their numbers. That's right. Exactly. So there's no domestic total. So we don't know how much it made in the U.S., we do know internationally, you know, because they played it, uh, they had to report the numbers for some of like the different territories they did in parts of Europe and parts of Asia. We don't even know all the international totals, but it didn't break a million um, worldwide. But that's just the official total. We don't know. We don't know. So that kind of tells you how hesitant they are with this kind of release format, this kind of scheduling thing well, to what you're saying. Yeah. And then that kind of goes back to that Friday article because. That's kind of the push and pull with uh, the theater chains. Like, not only were they like, please, let us play it longer than a week. Like, we know it's going to do well. Let us play it more. They were like, no, sorry. But they were like, okay, we're going to put as many of our, you know, theaters as possible. uh, Given the limit, I think they they cut it off at 600. But, like, we'll play as many screenings as possible because we're going to get the most money from this. And it's going to do well. But they couldn't advertise it, really. Like, for some reason, Netflix prevented them from being like, hey, these theaters have these movies. They just kind of just had to like let them roll out so as far ridiculous. as that uh, exclusive theatrical release where they're more preoccupied apparently with kind of building up word of mouth with these screenings than actually making a profit, right. which is where things get a little confusing. And it's the first time I'd ever seen like our local Regal theater because our local Regal was playing this in uh, the East Bay, uh, which so uh, like Oakland and all of that. And they were playing this at 9 a.m. I've never seen that Regal play anything that early before. Usually the first show times are like past 10.30. So yeah, that kind of tells you they were gearing up for this because they knew it was a holiday week. Yeah. And you know, this was the kind of movie that would play pretty well with people who were, you know, taking a few days off for the holiday for Thanksgiving. And not only, I mean, it is also worth noting that this is not a short film. This is like two and a half hours long. Yeah. So if they put, like, they can only really show it on like, a particular screen for what if they try to get as many screens as possible, maybe like three times max on one screening. Well, maybe. that depends, right. Yeah. Of like earliest to latest, because I saw that they also had midnight showings too. Oh, really? So they were, they were, play- I think they were, they were literally playing this like around the clock. I think like between maybe two, 3 AM and 8 AM, it was not playing, but otherwise rest of the day on multiple screens. Yeah. So, but that kind of tells you too, right? Because like, it, it makes sense. The the only big movie out right now is Wakanda Forever, which that's going to be taking up your, you know, your like your Dolby Atmos screens, your IMAX, like your big show, you know. But you have all these other little screens. I totally get it. Like Glass Onion can like dominate in that respect. Whereas like if you look at Fableman, Strange World, The Menu, She Said, like these movies just haven't had a lot of traction. So to me it makes total sense to bump up and inflate Glass Onion while you have it, right? Oh, it definitely makes sense. I just that uh, I think the confusion lies with Netflix where it's just like it seems like because initially the conversation was just like, oh they didn't know what they had. And it seems like oh they did know what they had. They just wanted that exclusivity. They wanted exactly. people to 100 percent yeah. uh, not really be able to see it easily and not really know about it until the word mouth started spreading. And then people are like, oh, yep. that sounds like a really nice movie. I loved the first knives out. I want to go see a sequel. It's like, well, 
you miss it. It was only in theaters for a week. And it's like, oh man, it was like it'll be on Netflix on December twenty third, so check it out then. And I think that was their grand idea. You know, I don't know if that's for the better or for the worse, but I think you know. Well, we haven't are, mentioned this. I yeah. do wonder, Will, because I was saying earlier that I don't get it, and I'm like, well, where's your revenue? Where's your monetization? And I think we are headed toward Netflix with ads. That's kind of in the can, isn't it? And so, yeah. if you do have like an ad format like it does you know it then you start to get into like yeah actually i could the, see this being a thing i mean the funny thing about netflix is they're like all right we got to change up the formula we're gonna put ads in our properties and instead of things coming out on like a giant dump like a whole season coming out on one day we're gonna release them one by one on a week and then put ads in between them it's like great gee what does that sound like you invented cable television <laughs> Well, that's what I mean. And Hulu, you know, right. like Hulu has for the longest time been like, yeah, you, you get Hulu, you you get ads, you know, and it's week to week stuff. But like now Hulu has gone even farther and Hulu just basically has a, their cable version where you pay like, I think like 70, $80 a month and you use Hulu like you would direct TV. You have live TV and you have all that stuff in addition to the streaming stuff. Like, what is what is new is old. <laughs> what is old is new again. It's yep. yeah. But uh, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds for Netflix in terms of their theatrical release. Like I said, there seems to be some inner turmoil with the company where some people involved from like what that article detailed want to really push the theatrical release primarily because uh, I mean we talked about this before, but I feel like a movie uh, exists more quote unquote if. It is in theaters because it seems more legitimate. It seems like a real movie as opposed to to a us. Thumbnail. Well, I mean, there are a lot of people who like sure. what, whatever. Like it makes no no skin off sure. their back or whatever. I get that, but I mean, to me, it's like you know, there's so many movies. They're like I've heard they're on Netflix. I've even heard some of them pretty good. But it's like the the fact they just exist to me as a thumbnail as opposed to an actual thing that I can click on uh, and watch. Uh, you know, seems intangible to me. But when you play them in theaters, like you did with Glass Onion, it's like, okay, this is a movie. You got the word of mouth out there, and now it's going to be on Netflix. And you know, this movie it. must be good. I have to pay for it. But yeah, I mean, I, I, th- from what I can tell, this is the, I guess, so far as we can assume, the most profitable Netflix theatrical film since Red Notice, because I think that also went to theaters in some, uh, at least I think in Regal Cinemas. I'm, um, I, I don't, Cinemark I don't really scenes. know how that all. Panned yeah. out, honestly. I, I think it played in one of the chains. News to me. Yeah. Um, but that one, I guess, did okay. I think Gray Man also went to those cinemas, but I don't think it did as well in theaters. Um, but yeah, select few uh, Netflix movies have actually been creeping their way into the more chain theaters. Of yeah. course, there have been other Netflix movies that have gone to theaters. For instance, like uh, Beast of No Nation, I think, was like the first one to really get a theatrical rollout. I know Power of the Dog last year got a theatrical rollout because we played at the Harris Theater. Um, yeah, I saw Pinocchio recently in a theater. Um, you know, there's been a few others, but oh, the Irishman, yeah. of course. It's definitely uh, way more commonplace than it used to be. Yes. Yeah, I saw Irishman in a theater. Yeah. Um, but okay. Uh, yeah. That's enough. our review of Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. <laughs> Let's play the Rotten Tomatoes game. Um, yeah. Yeah. Enough <laughs> business talk. Let's talk about the movie. <laughs> um, if we can. Yeah, and I know like we could talk about this all day, I think, because like it's uh it's it is an interesting topic, but I do want to make I mean, sure we mm-hmm. not everybody's that interested in it. I was gonna yeah. say 
I mean, it's interesting to me. It's interesting to you. I don't know how interesting it is for someone who clicked on this review wanting to hear our thoughts on the new Ryan Johnson film. Right. Uh, and, and honestly, I, I, I want to be careful talking about this movie in general. Maybe that's why I'm like subconsciously trying to avoid talking about it, because it, it is a whodunit. And whodunit movies, mystery movies like this, by nature, you should try to go into it as unfamiliar with the premise and the characters and everything else as much as possible, because discovery is pretty much the most fun thing about these kinds of movies and kind of following along and being dropped into it, not really knowing what's going to happen. Right. And so just from the outset, I mean, this is one of those movies and I think that it's very effective in laying that sort of thing out. And obviously the second, like when you rewatch the movie, it's also fun because then you get to rediscover it. And when you know what happens at that point and you have that context, then you can rewatch it and be like, Oh yeah, there's that, there's a clue like right there. I didn't really consider that. Oh, how fun. Um, so stuff like that is pretty cool. Sure. And I, I know for me, when I rewatched knives out, I, you know, it was even more fun the second time, uh, being able to have that experience. Uh, so we are, we are going to talk about glass onion and uh, you know, we're not going to go beyond the trailer. Uh, what like what the trailers kind of give away, but for well, sure, I'd say that if you're interested in the movie, you, you you know for sure you're gonna see it. You want the optimal experience. I do think that like listening to us talk about it, you don't need our you know in depth review to decide if you want to see it or not. I say go see it. I was gonna say I actually have never I never saw the trailer for this film, so I don't know what's in hmm. the trailer. I did watch the trailer. Um, while I was working on my review for it, my review for it actually isn't out, but, uh, it will be out soon. And yeah, I watched the trailer because I wanted to really have like a reference for how much does it give away. And it gave out a little bit, it gave away a little bit more than I thought it would actually. Um, but yeah, we'll keep it real. We'll keep it real. So, okay. Glass onion, a knives out mystery. It, it, it's less a sequel and more spinoff, right? It's not it, it's not connected to the first Knives Out, except for the character of Benoit Blanc in a new situation, a new mystery. But obviously, you could watch this movie without having seen the first Knives Out and be totally fine. You don't need to watch Knives Out to get the most fun out of this movie, in my opinion. I, I, don't, I don't know what the first Knives Out would give you, except for just the, the knowledge that this is a really great detective. But I think that you can kind of tell he's a really great detective from the get-go because he's in a bathtub and he's hanging out and uh, he says that he's the best detective. That's all I need to know. But the situation here is that a group of sort of like elite people, you know, uh, celebrity influencers, uh, there's one person who's basically been canceled, I guess, and there's this kind of like chemist tech person. They're all sort of like, uh, I guess, avatars for different real life people. So like Kate Hudson plays pretty much like a Kardashian type person. You know, you could put in a bunch of different celebrities there. Leslie Odom Jr. plays this version of kind of like Elon Musk, but not, no, not Elon Musk, but like somebody who would work for Elon Musk. Uh, there, there's somebody that I'm forgetting. Who's like kind of up there who like actually does the, the science stuff, but he's like a chemist, I guess. Um, you talking like you, a was type. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Woz, Wozniak, of course, like with Apple, yep. not with Apple anymore. But yes, that is much closer uh, to what I'm talking about. Catherine Hahn is kind of like your typical like Hillary Clinton kind of like Democrat liberal 
and uh, you also have who else? Oh yeah, Dave Batista, who is basically Joe like <laughs> Joe Rogan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it couldn't be clearer than Dave, who right. Dave Batista is channeling there. Um, but then also, oh, I, I feel like I'm forgetting somebody actually. Um, well, well, there is Janelle Monet, but there, was, is there something? Anyone else? There's Janelle Monet and uh, there's might whiskey. Be it. Huh? Uh, there's whiskey. Yeah, but I mean, then, then we're getting into uh, sort of the supporting. But yeah, yeah. okay, I, th- I think I got them all. But um, well, well there's five, yeah. right? And then there's the yeah. I guess that I guess that's everybody. I think that's it. I think that's it because we said yeah, Kate Hudson, Dave Batista, Leslie Odom Jr. Now there is like the the head of the group, and he's the the Elon Musk yes. kind of character, the Norton. Elon Musk, or you know, pick your billionaire, Jeff Bezos, whoever, uh, played by Edward Norton, and. He sends this box to all of these friends who know each other. They've known each other for years. And the box contains like all these little puzzles. The whole point is that he's trying to invite them to a murder mystery. And he says that, you know, if you're going to come to my private island and spend time with me and figure out who is going to be responsible for my murder. And then who gets a box? Who else gets a box? But the world's greatest detective, not Batman. But Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig, of course, played the character in the first Knives Out. And he goes on this like little excursion out of boredom. Because as it turns out, this movie takes place during May 2020. So this is peak lockdown time in uh, when COVID was really still just kind of like there was no vaccine, obviously. So like people were still pretty much like scared of it. Nowadays, it's very different. But uh, certainly this movie is hearkening back to lockdown, sure. And everybody's sort of like, oh, you know, we could use some, you know, normalcy is how the Edward Norton character pitches it. So everybody come to my island. He has a way to make sure that they don't have COVID, I guess. Uh, They all wave it away. And sure enough, some very interesting things start to go down, particularly when they find out that Janelle Monae's character has been invited, even though she shouldn't have been. Because she is uh, kind of out of the friend group for reasons that are not very clear. But it, sure enough, when they, everyone sees her, they're a little bit like WTF. So, Will Ashton, I know you liked the first Knives Out. I, I liked the first Knives Out. Good movie. Good time in the theater. Yeah. What did you think of Glass Onion? Do you think this one is uh, worthy? Is it a worthy mystery? Yeah, I had fun. It was an entertaining little lark. But I will say, uh, for me at least, there's been a little bit of debate on this online I've seen. I think, ultimately, this is the lesser of the two films. I think it... Really? Yeah. Do you think this one's better? I think better? it's just as good. No, I think it's definitely weaker than the first one. I think that first... And, and for ways, I think the, the movie is pretty self-aware of, in the sense that that first movie, I think it's like a well-oiled clock. Or it's like a well-wounded clock. It's like a very, you know, you know, tightly wound screenplay. Uh, you know, you can tell Ryan Johnson put a lot of thought and concentration to pacing and storytelling of it, uh, making sure everything kind of connected and clicked together in a really entertaining and satisfying way. This one deliberately is a little bit looser. It's a little bit breezier. It's a little bit It's purposely broader. messier. Yes, purposely a little bit uh, baggier in a way that I think in part is kind of to give it kind of more of a loosey goosey feel. And also I think kind of to adopt it to a Netflix crowd. 
Uh, I mean, it's kind of hard to say because we saw in theaters, but I feel like a lot of the beginning of the film takes a while to kind of set up, you know, the the conflict. Like you had mentioned, there's a lot of uh, establishing of like the COVIDness of the the world, which I felt was some of the weakest stuff in the film. Uh, I wasn't as quite I wasn't quite as taken by the acknowledgement that the pandemic is happening. I, I kind of like the little things. Like you said, there's a, a fun cameo from uh, a certain star who kind of weighs away the, the, there the are pandemic a few fun cameos. In I know, this. but uh, that one I thought was the best one, that particular one. I thought there was one uh, zoom call where I thought the cameos, well, two of them were, you know, touching cause two of those people aren't with us anymore. Yeah. Um, I felt like that scene was uh, a little cringy and I feel like that's kind of the film and that shows that it kind of walks this very tight, tight rope where it's on the verge of being clever and cringe. And I feel like the first movie was a little bit more adept at narrowing, you know, kind of going through that. And this movie, it's a little bit wobblier about that, especially because like the onlineness is a lot more prevalent in this film. Kind of like you said, these kind of outsized personalities that are based on these very branded type of people. And I think it's, uh, you know, still very fun. You know, I, I think the characters really work together. I think Batista and Janelle Monet and, of course, Daniel Craig are some of the highlights here. I also think, you know, Edward Norton's having a lot of fun. Kate Hudson's very, uh, very entertaining as well. Uh, I kind of wish there was a little bit more with uh, Catherine Hahn and Leslie Odom Jr. I felt like they established them as being prominent characters at the beginning, and then they kind of just did away with them comparatively as the movie went along with the exception of a few scenes, but um, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was fun. Not like I said, not as tight as the previous film, but still a good time. And uh, yeah, fun little twists and turns throughout. Yeah. I think what I like the most about this movie and yeah, I definitely am of the opinion where it is very different from the first knives out in a good way, but it, it, to me it's, it's comparable. And one of the reasons my favorite thing about it, I think is that, it's not just aware of the first one. It's actively trying to be different from the first one. And I like that it is avoiding the same structure. It's avoiding the same sort of, okay, there's been a murder and now we're going to figure out who did it. And we're going to navigate these characters and, Oh, we're going to find out actually, you know, who killed this person very, very early on. Like that was more of knives out. And I think that was what made that movie very special because it was subverting what you already knew about, the murder mystery whodunit genre. And this movie I think is special as well because it understands that you probably watched the first one and it's not content as a movie. Ryan Johnson was not content to just do knives out again. He wanted to do something different. And I think what elevates this movie a bit over some of its flaws. And I certainly think that like, it's not as tight, uh, but I think what really sticks with me for this movie is the message I think hits a little bit better than the first Knives Out one did. The first Knives Out, it has a good message. It has a good heart to it. And it, it all comes down to Ana de Armas. And it, it all comes down to how that character, you know, her story and what she meant to a certain character and, and all of that. And it was very good in that respect. There was some stuff in that first Knives Out that I thought was a little bit extraneous, a little bit like, okay, this is getting a little bit like nonsensical. Sure. But I guess what I really, really liked 
with this movie is that when it finally got to the end, I didn't love everything about the ending. There's some like stuff that happens where it's very cringy, but still the message lands. And that's what mattered the most to me. And I thought the message was a little bit more interesting. It was a little bit more compelling. It felt like Ryan Johnson was getting something off of his chest here. Whereas I feel like knives out was him just kind of like having fun. But here I felt like he had like a really distinct purpose behind what he wanted to get across. And it was his commentary on the elite of society, the billionaires of society. And he does it in a way that's so funny. And it's just so like, oh, yeah, duh. You know, and it was one of those things where like, I feel like you can watch the movie and feel smart if you catch on to what it's up to. But even if you don't. It's not like the movie is like way too convoluted and contrived to make you feel like, oh, okay, it was just like this out of nowhere, right? Uh, I actually think that he did a really good job of like setting up so that you could piece things together yourself. I don't think it's the most, it's the hardest mystery in the world to solve, to be sure. Uh, I don't know about you, Will, but I definitely called a lot of it, uh, pretty much all of it. But still, it, it wasn't in, it, not in a way where I was just like, oh, this is too obvious. But it was a little bit more of like, I hope this is the direction it goes in, because that would be perfect. And uh, that's what I got. So, you know, it could just be one of those things where my particular experience was better because of that, uh, because I just was a little bit more forgiving of uh, some of some of the storytelling shortcuts, I guess. Yeah. And I guess that's where kind of the Netflixiness of the film. And I, I say that in a way it sounds kind of derogatory, but it's actually in this case meant to be kind of more of a compliment because I think I agree with you in the sense that this movie kind of finds that proper balance. That I think most Netflix movies haven't been able to, which is that you can watch it as, you know, you're paying attention, you're in a movie theater, you're enjoying it as a piece of entertainment, as a crowd, you know, crowd pleasing experience. But it's also kind of meant to be something a little bit, like I said, breezier that you can kind of put on the background if you prefer, like while you're watching uh, or, or sorry, while you're folding laundry or kind of doing something else. And it kind of works both ways. Like you can watch it when you're paying attention and kind of catch a little clues and figure out what the reveal is. Or you can just kind of watch it as like a, a hangout movie where a bunch of, you know, celebrities are kind of playing these, uh, you know, oversized, uh, you know, pompous, you know, elites just hanging out and, you know, trading quips and having fun. And it kind of works on both fronts. Like it, it works as just like a goofy kind of piece of uh, ensemble entertainment. And it works as this kind of, uh, you know, takedown of the uh, mystery genre while supplying yeah. to the tropes people like about them. I guess where I disagree with what you're saying, though, uh, I agree with you, I guess, in the sense of the message of the film, I think is very pointed. Uh, I think, you know, it, it's very deliberate what he's saying, and I think he gets the climactic moment right. But I think the movie is kind of missing that on the arm is heart. I feel like, you know, in that first movie, you do uh, get it with Janelle Monet. Eventually, but I feel like it's more present in this movie in a way that but that's like, the thing. I think that if they had really overdone it with that, it would have felt too much like the first one. So I'm, I'm good with them so. subverting it in that way, because I think I would have been unhappy if they but, just. Yeah. But then that relies on. Uh, they Blanc. Uh, am I pronouncing Benoit Blanc? Benoit Blanc. <laughs> Which I like. Uh, you know, they the, gave him a little bit more to do here. He felt more like a main character instead is, of like, a, yeah. you know. He's more of the main character for two thirds of the film, which is an interesting choice. And I think works when they're on the island, but doesn't work when they're not on the island. Uh, they're barely off the island, though. True. But that setup is where I, kinda, I guess I find myself a little bit hesitant because it just takes so long 
it might That's be true. I wasn't fully bought into this movie before certain things happened. Sure. And yeah, I was a little bit like, okay, when are we going to get to the thing? Like, right. this is kind of taking a while. Wait a second. We're like an hour in. Yeah, yeah. And that's but Netflix for me, I think it was all worth it in the end. I think. Is that Netflix, I think, is it, a lot of their stuff, or a lot of the original content, at least, does kind of have that kind of rambling feel to it where they kind of, you know, they, they expect people to kind of be walking in and out of the film so they don't feel as pressure to be as tight and as controlled, which can be fine on Netflix, but when you're watching a theater, I feel it's a little bit more uh, obvious. I don't know if I buy into johnson really gearing this movie that much toward a netflix audience i honestly get the sense that he just kind of made this the way he way he wanted to make this uh, I, I don't know i, 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 think I in don't the broad know if sense, I, that's probably true but I, think I, I just i guess yeah i mean mind, maybe I he had it in his mind but i mean sure people people watch movies that were not made for netflix on netflix all the time sure yeah of course and it uh, works for that i mean you know yeah like uncharted i think we were talking about that in an earlier episode like didn't really do great in theaters, I don't think, at least critically, but it's it okay. Doing gangbusters on Netflix, and you can kind of understand why. I mean, yeah, it's, it's an easy like. Oh yeah, I did just make this popcorn over here anyway. Might as well watch him this Uncharted movie. I've got this popcorn. What else am I gonna do? But yeah, uh, I, yeah, I like this movie a good bit. Uh, yeah, it, it's not one of my favorite movies of 2022. Sure, by no means, and. You know, Knives Out was not one of my favorite movies of 2019. I don't think, like, I think some people watch these movies and are, like, a little bit more of, like, oh, my gosh. This is, like, defining cinema for me. And I won't go that far because I, I don't like these movies that much, but I do really enjoy them a lot. I just, I love them for what they are. And they're not movies that necessarily challenge me as, as a particular moviegoer all that much. Uh, not that they don't have challenging material in them but i do get this they're crowd pleasers that's what i like about them i kind of like that they are sort of like what you're saying they're they're laid back you can just kind of like sit down hang out with this movie and it might make you think a little bit but it's certainly not like the kind of film that just has me up at night i wasn't like dwelling on this movie or anything yeah no i mean it's it's multi-purpose like you can just watch it as a slick piece of entertainment or you can really kind of dive into what it's saying politically i don't I don't know. I guess for me, I guess where we disagree is I feel like the, as you mentioned, that the the politics of it, the messaging of it is meant to be a little bit more deliberately messy. I think that's fine in the scheme of things, but I think that just still makes it weaker than the first movie where I feel like it, it could have its heart on sleeve. It could be a little bit more thoughtful about its presentation and it could have Ani de Armas really ground the film in an investing and meaningful way in addition to being like a fun slick romp like this one can often be and i feel like this movie yeah, I mean, one thing i'll give the that, first movie yeah oh go ahead no just i mean it, it does get to what you're talking like it does get to some of that emotional heart but you ha- you kind of have to sit with the movie for a while to get to that and that's fine but you know i just feel like as an overall investing experience like that first movie without giving away you know has like the perfect ending this has like I think a pretty good ending. Like I yeah. think the climax is strong. I think the ending's like pretty good. It's like weirdly similar ending. Oh yeah, I shouldn't say that. But there's another movie that came out this year. I won't say what movie because I don't want to give things away. But there's another movie that came out this year, and it's like so similar to like this one that I'm just kind of like, huh? <laughs> like why do we keep doing it this kind of ending? But I don't know. Um, also, I you know like look, 
one thing that the first movie does have that I don't think this movie necessarily has, and it is a little too early to judge because I've only seen it once and maybe that's the reason, but the first movie does have like really definable moments in it that like stick out. So the, the recurring bit where everyone sort of imagines themselves in the flashback of the Christopher Plummer character, right? Like that's a very, like that sticks out uh, on a Armis drinking the cup, uh, iconic moment. Um, there's puking. the whole thing. Huh? Or puking. The puking bit. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a very memorable thing. It's it's such a fun little thing about the movie. And um, th- there's one other thing that I'm forget. Oh, you uh, know, there's that whole really cringy scene where they're all talking about immigration sure. and politically. And, like, the whole framing of all the political stuff in that scene. I always found it, like, very interesting. Kind of hard to watch, honestly. It's kind of, it is cringe. But sure. uh, it does stick out. Yeah. Particularly for that time. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to try to say that the first movie is without cringe, uh, you know, but I think that first, oh, yeah, movie, and there is also, sorry, there is the Daniel Craig, like the donut hole thing. I mean, that just, that's everybody's favorite moment of teams, but I feel like the first movie maybe is giving a little too, too much credit, but I felt it was a little bit better about giving some of its more cringy assets to the needed characters that need to be a little cringy in a way that I feel like this movie more characters equal opportunity more, cringe yeah, yeah evil opportunity cringe is in this one i guess benoit blanc gets to be a little cringe yeah cringe it's kind of fun yeah and, uh, i mean he, well uh i will say outside of the cringe uh some great outfits in this film from the whole cast yeah he's rocking the ascot yeah but especially from blanc they decided in between movies you know what he's gay and everybody was just like let's do it yeah he has a uh celebrity love interest that won't dare spoil yeah he does but it's uh, quite fun tom, you say tom jones no said i'm jealous oh jealous oh you're jealous yeah i can understand you yeah i'm not outing tom jones come on now but uh yeah good movie it sounds like we're both like you know on, on slightly different pages but i don't think we're in a different book altogether no i mean i think you know solid movie like i said i think for me the high the high points were often with batista i feel like he's just really keyed into this movie Uh, in a great way and i feel like i mean he's just always been good or not yeah i guess like since guardians like he's just been you know really working with like some of our you know top talent you know fumbled a few times he did like a my spy here and there i won't hold it against him but he (laughs) he really latched on to like these key supporting roles in like films like this and dune and blade runner 2049 of course and it just they suit him well yeah and i think he's you know becoming uh quite a great uh character actor and uh, I think this, he just really seems, uh, I think even more so than some of his co-stars, really keyed into what this movie needs to be and what his role needs to be. It's a little tired to have him being like, oh, I'm a, like this internet personality, but I live with my mom and all this stuff where it's just like, that's like an entire trope. Just make him pathetic, you know, on the onset, like just like pathetic by nature, because that's a lot of these, you know, right wing men activist types are just kind of embarrassing just by being present in public uh <laughs> as they are but you know other than that i thought his character was a lot of fun and i yeah like i said uh i also enjoyed the the norton and the the blanc and the monet and uh yeah had a good time the blanc you mean the daniel blanc. craig the blanc yeah i'm putting the in front of these actors for oh, some okay reason. i don't know why it's late. yeah you know I, I i think for me i was a big fan of like what kate hudson's doing here uh, she gets one particular scene that is just, it's so well done. It's one of those things where like it, it works so well because of how she sells the dialogue. Um, and it, yeah, yeah the, it, it stands out quite well. 
Yeah, if it's a senior, um, you're thinking of. I mean, I, you got to give credit. Pants. Yeah, I was gonna say you got to also give credit to uh, Jessica Henwick because she's the one that really delivers that. that well, line. I was about to mention that. So Jessica Henwick, I think similar. I agree with you about uh, Catherine Hahn and Leslie Odom Jr. I think those three, they were really missing like moments or something. Like it, it just felt like the movie really belongs to like Edward Norton, like you said. Great to see him, by the way. I know we had, we saw him in like French Dispatch and everything, but you know it's just nice to see him in a non Wes Anderson sure. <laughs> movie. Did you, um, did you ever end up huh? seeing Motherless Brooklyn? No, no. It's okay. He directed. Uh, it too. Yeah, I wasn't compelled to see it, but yeah. Uh, yeah, and I know people are are people are big fans of like Madeline Klein. Apparently, like uh, Mike Wilverholz was telling us that she's apparently the bee's knees and Outer Banks. Uh, I thought she was very interesting in this. Like, she has a couple. That, that's the thing. I felt like she had more sort of like character moments in this than Catherine Hahn and Leslie Odom Jr. Who I'm like, oh my gosh, these are like big names, you know? And I, it just, it just seemed a little weird to me. Jessica Henwick, I kind of understand because of the nature of that character. She's not really like that, uh, you know, at least at first glance, like, she, you know, she's not that important to the plot maybe, but, uh, yeah, certainly I, w- I kind of walked away from the movie being like, huh, you know? Yeah. I the, guess that, that could have been filled by lots of different people. And I feel like Jessica Henwick is a real talent. So sure. yeah. I was gonna say, I, I feel like she's done mostly TV stuff, so I'm not as familiar with her, I feel like she might be a little bit She has bit done of- TV and movies. She right. was in, uh, well, she was just in The Matrix. I know, I was going to uh, mention that, but I was going to say, like, outside of that, like, she's done, like, Marvel stuff, I think, which have been a little bit out of my orbit. Didn't she do, like, Iron Fist or something? She was Colleen in Marvel Fist. Um, in she was, Marvel like, the Fist? best character in that show. Like, she was the reason that show was, like, as salvageable as it was. Right. Uh, she had a, one of the lead roles in Love and Monsters, a movie I like to get Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, she was in that one. Um, uh, she had a small, she had kind of a small role in on the rocks. Um, she oh, was yeah. in that. Yeah. Uh, she had a, I, I know she was, she was in that one, um, underwater with, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh Kristen Stewart. Stewart. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, she, I, she's been in some stuff. Sure. I mean, you, you, I could not remember, uh, much about underwater. I'll admit, but I, mean, I, I vaguely thought- remember her in that Drake Doremus, uh, movie with, uh, uh, with Nicholas Holt from like, I think it's 2017. Is that the one? I don't know if you even watched Newness, but I think we talked about his last movie. You and me, the one with Shailene Woodley. But um, okay. Um, yeah. Any case, endings, was, beginnings. Yeah, I, mean, I remember you talking about that one. Okay, I, I can remember if you saw it. Okay, no, I did not. But see. also, Jessica Henwick was in The Gray Man. You mentioned The Gray Man earlier in this episode of Cinemaholics. I did. Didn't see that film. Me neither. <laughs> yeah, but no, I was gonna say between at least between. Um, uh, what she did in the most recent Matrix movie and, and this, I feel like she's been really standing out in these key supporting roles. And I'm like, yeah, she's got the goods. I just kind of want to see her get something that, uh, you know, services uh, talents well. And I feel like that'll come eventually, but it hasn't come today. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, she's had supporting roles in lots of things, but sure. I, I can't think of something I've seen her in where it really felt like, wow, you know, like she is just really killing it, I guess. So yeah, that's a good point. Uh, right. yeah. I don't know if there's a whole lot more to say, uh, about the film, especially given that we have another film to discuss. Uh, but I will say to wrap this up on my end, at least, uh, more cocking in this movie than I anticipated, which I felt was pretty fun. <laughs> I won't give away which character it. gets cucked by who, but, uh, <laughs> I thought that was kind of delightful. 
Well, I'm not even going to comment on that. Uh, let the mystery sure. stay where it is. Except the mystery, to quote a serious man. <laughs> All right. Well, that is Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. It is not in theaters now, but it might be again soon. And uh, you'll be able to see it on Netflix, uh, when did you say? December 23rd? Just a couple days before Christmas. I believe that's when it's supposed to come to Netflix. Uh, I can double check. It's a long movie, like we said, two hours and 20 minutes long. So you'll, uh, you have your work cut out for you. You got a movie to watch there. Well, let's get into the Rotten Tomatoes game. Now, well, actually, we have 256 reviews counted. That's a lot. A lot of people are like, you know what? Give me a piece of that onion. Let's do it. What do you think the critic score is for Glass Onion? Um, so I think it's going to be critic wise, pretty favorable. When I even go so far as to say a 94%. So close, Walashen. So close. You're 1% off. Now, do you think that it is then 1% off in a negative direction or positive direction? So is it 93 Uh, or is it a 95? I'm feeling 95. I'm sorry, Walashen. I think you had lightning the queen on the brain. Probably why you wanted to say 95. But unfortunately for you, it is 93%. So, uh, But I appreciate your optimism. It certainly perked my spirits. What about the audience score, Will? We have 500 plus verified ratings. Let's see how you do with that. Audience score? Um, I, feel, I don't know. Based on my audience, they seem to be pretty with it. Uh, maybe not as much as the first one, but... My audience liked it a good decent bit, as it turns yeah, out. Yeah, you, you advertise that a lot. Um, I'm going to say, what are you talking about, Will? <laughs> uh, 93%, 93%. Well, did you cheat? Uh, did you look at no. it? You could just tell me. I did not cheat. Did you just be like, Oh, I got, I got the audience. I got the critic score wrong, but I don't want John to stop believing in me. And all right. Yes. It's 93%. Well done. And 93, 93 split. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, they're both uh, 93. Well done, well done. Uh, I actually don't know if this has a cinema score. Let's check. I don't think uh, it would. Cinema score? No, it does not. Netflix was like, I don't want anybody in Vegas even watching this movie, even when it comes out on Netflix. That's what he said. Yeah. They, right, let's look at the letterbox. Mm-hmm. Sorry, what? I don't know. It, it was going to be dumb. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. All right. So on letterbox.com, we have... 84,000 watches. That's actually not that much for a movie like this. I, I was expecting six figures, but okay. Uh, what do you think the average rating is, Will Ash? Uh, 4.1. Well. What? You gotta be cheating. I'm not cheating. You never get it spot on two times. Hmm. My hands, my hands are here. My phone I, is right over here. I don't know. There's a mystery afoot. And I'm feeling a little bit like Benoit Blanc myself, but uh, I will for now trust you uh, unconditionally. So okay. congratulations, Will Ashton. Thank you. You have won the Rotten Tomatoes game, as you Thank usually you. do. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to the Fablemans. Oh, um, yeah, before I forget, it is December 23rd for the Netflix debut. Yeah. All right. The Fablemans. We're going to end on a Spielberg movie here. And Steven Spielberg has made... Truly, some of the best films of all time. I thought you were going to name them all. <laughs> like, like, just like, he's made, uh, I want to say, Let's like, start with Sugarland Express. 40 movies or something? 
Um, you no, know, I mean, Steven Spielberg. Uh, some call him the greatest director of all time. I would not yeah. argue with them. Uh, I, mean, I think that he is certainly of that uh, in the in the argument for the greatest. Certainly among the living American filmmakers, one of the most indelible, you know, populist filmmakers of our time. That's the thing. If you judge the man by the criteria of the best filmography versus his contribution to cinema, he excels tremendously at both because this is the man who brought us really the blockbuster. You know, some people say the blockbuster predated Jaws. I don't know about that. To me, the history seems pretty settled on Jaws being the original blockbuster. I mean, even if it's not the first like blockbuster in the traditional sense, it's the movie that created the summer movie season. Mm-hmm. It really did. Uh, and that's really what people tend to mean by that, right? Because nowadays we get blockbusters all year long. But it was a very different story back in the day, right? And yes, Jaws, of course, and the Indiana Jones trilogy. Uh, certainly, you know, Jurassic Park, one of the quintessential achievements in special effects. To this day, people watch scenes from Jurassic Park and are like, this exceeds like the quality of films that you know you can't you can't even measure jurassic park up against uh you know stuff coming out today including other jurassic park movies it still looks better and it has aged better uh spielberg is just uh he's a visionary director he's a, a technical master he's just somebody who gets it you know and even beyond some of the technicals uh, we can look at his movies like Close Encounters. We can look at his movies like E.T. We can look at his recent stuff uh, like Bridge of Spies and Catch Me If You Can, Lincoln. Movies that also have a lot of heart to them. And, you know, there's like a Spielbergian sort of like, you know, coming of age quality to a lot of his films because he's a, he's an honest artist. He's just really good at bringing his baggage to stuff. And his baggage tends to resonate with people. So I'm a big fan of Spielberg. I certainly have said critical things about Spielberg uh, in recent years and in recent group chats that Will Ashton is part of. Um, And, you know, to me, there is nothing wrong with pointing out that, you know, Spielberg's not a god. He's not perfect. He has limitations. I'm sure he's well aware of. And there's nothing wrong with pointing those things out. And I think that they pale in comparison to what he brings to cinema. And I don't think there's a better movie to talk about in that respect, in that context, than truly his most personal movie of all time. Some people might say, no, no, no. E.T. is his most personal movie because that one is really directly dealing with something that he was going through in real time. Uh, No, no, I guess not real time, but like, you know, closer to when it happened versus The Fablemans, which is basically like semi-autobiographical to his life. Yeah, I mean, that's something I think like, didn't really become clear for a lot of people until this film is that his parents have been so infused in so many of his great films. They just kind of that because they're about so many different things, they don't, they kind of get overshadowed. Like not only ET, which very much relates to his relationship with his mother and his absentee father, but also his, uh, his other films like close encounters, the third kind very much deals with his parents. Catch me if you can very much deals with his parents. I mean, there are several other examples I don't want to go through his like whole filmography, but like his relationship and his tethered, uh, you know, dysfunctional uh, relationship with his divorcee parents is also it's something that he's been kind of searching through throughout his whole resume yes. and something that also though has his Jewish him. identity 
Yes, exactly. And his troubled, you know, high school experience, which I remember, Will, when I was was at a football game with our friend, Brian Coleman. Uh, Brian was one of my groomsmen. You got to meet him. Uh, Truly one of my my closest friends. And uh, Brian and I were at a football game years ago in San Jose. And Brian told me this was a high school football game because we uh, we knew some of like the people there, and uh, you know Brian did like youth outreach and stuff like that. And so Brian, Brian and I were sitting there, and he tells me, "By the way, did you know that Steven Spielberg went to this high school?" And I was like, "No way! I thought that Steven Spielberg lived in like Arizona, and then he eventually moved to." Like I knew the whole story of like how he he went to the Universal lot and talked his way into like working there. He literally would just like sneak there, and he got his like first couple jobs. Then that eventually turned into him directing Duel. And he was like, "Nope, he lived here. He lived here, and he had a horrific experience at that high school." And I was like, "Seriously?" He was like, "It was so bad." that the alumni of the school don't even recognize that he went here and neither does he because he faced so much anti-Semitism there and like he was bullied relentlessly because it's like how the Fablemans portrays it. He went when he was older, like a senior in high school and he just felt completely out of place. He didn't want to be there. And yeah, it's certainly, and obviously like his family life was going through a time and it was interesting to see this movie depicted in more detail, obviously, like through the fictional retelling. But yeah, that, that was something where I was kind of like, huh. So this is like what he was getting at. <laughs> because I've seen some people be like, it's so cartoonish what he went through. And I was like, eh, based on what I've heard, it doesn't seem like it's that far off. Like he straight up, like people are bullies in high school, as it turns out, especially in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, I mean, that's something I feel like has been kind of the case with this movie, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like there's just been some weird criticisms directed at this film. I'm not trying to dissuade people from having criticisms about the film. That's fine. You know, it's if you don't like the film for whatever reason, or you, you nitpick the film for whatever reason, that's fine. It's totally valid. But I feel like, yeah, like people are just kind of saying weird things like, oh, this seems exaggerated. This doesn't seem quite true. Where it's like, from what I can tell, a lot of this is like, you know, obviously some of it's heightened for a dramatic effect, but a lot of it's also pretty toned down and, you know, streamlined for you know the sake of the narrative and also like some people are just like i don't know how i feel about the casting of his parents he didn't quite get it right where it's like no offense but who are you to say that <laughs> like <laughs> this is spielberg like his you know uh, i'm gonna trust him and feel like he's gonna you know believe if he says this is what his parents are like i believe it you know you can you know feel however you feel about the performances but yeah just like i just feel like people are saying you know frankly some just kind of odd things about this film and i just can't say that a lot of them are warranted at this moment I do wonder if a lot of that too, and and look, I'm not the biggest fan of this movie. I I do not dislike it at all. I had a good time watching this, Um, but I'm certainly not like, this is best picture. This is one of the best of the year. It's not in my top 10, but uh, I think it's quite good. And I I think that I really respect Spielberg for making this movie. I'm glad he got to make this movie because he's been wanting to, and I know he was waiting a long time. You could tell that he wanted to make this movie at the right time. He wanted to make it when, honestly he had the room to explore this part of his life without worrying about like his parents watching it. And, you know, as it turns out, his parents live long lives. I think his father lived to be like over a hundred. And so like, it, it was that kind of thing where he's like, Spielberg's what, 75, 76 now. And 
I think he's in a place where he has, like I said, that room to sort of like go back to this time with slightly more objectivity than he might have uh, a decade or two decades ago. And I, I think, though, at the same time, I do have my criticisms of this movie. I, but to what you're saying, I have seen some of those like, this feels exaggerated, this feels absurd. And I guarantee you some of these same people are the same people who watched Licorice Pizza last year. And we're like, this is great, <laughs> you know, where it's like, no, you can watch stuff like this and buy into it. It's, I think well, some people are just sort of bringing their, you know, Spielberg is a sacred cow and I'm going to look edgy if I say something negative about Spielberg in a hyperbolic way. Sure. A lot of people like to do that because it's a shortcut to looking like you're a smart person when you are purposely and artificially contrarian instead of contrarian with uh some substance which i think is a lot harder thing to pull off and i think it's um, easier to recognize when somebody's just sort of being a contrarian to get attention instead of like hey you know what? like i i do have an alternate perspective on this and you have the goods to back it up that's what i always look for because to me that's interesting i know you and i have sure. argued about this when it comes to a certain film critic uh not argued but certainly we've we've gone to we've, we've come to blows a little bit because uh yeah. there's a certain critic where i feel like fits the ladder and you don't agree and of course no, that's I, funny. I if it's a critic i'm thinking of i tend to agree and uh you know i think we 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 like to pick on certain critics just between the two of us uh i i can uh assure any potential critics or who are listening to this show that it's probably not you but <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I'm sure Will, you and I are that critic to somebody else who knows, sure, and I'm that's the circle of life, of it, yeah. isn't it? But uh, yeah, I mean, to be okay. Uh, despite saying that before, uh, I have seen some genuine criticisms that you know, I not any criticism of film is unwarranted, to be sure. Um, but with that said, for one, Licorice Pizza is a great film, and I think this is a great film. In fact, I would even go so far as to say. This is Spielberg's best movie in a decade. Maybe a little bit longer. longer. I mean, it's better than West Side Story. I would agree. Better than The Post. Better than yes. Ready Player One. Yes, that, absolutely um, better than Ready Player One. I think the last Spielberg movie I, I watched that I thought was terrific, like just really well done, was Bridge of Spies, uh, uh, which was yeah, 2015. Was yeah, I thought that was good. I, uh, I would say the it's movie probably his best right. since Lincoln. Maybe his best since The Adventures of Tintin. I loved Adventures of Tintin, so I I'm certainly have a kind there. Uh, Tintin was, and that was after uh, Lincoln, huh? And War Horse? Uh, no, no, Tintin Warhorse? was before Lincoln. Was there it? Was okay, Lincoln, Lincoln was 2010 Warhorse. or 2012? Do I have my dates wrong? Tintin was 2011. Uh, okay. Same year as War Horse, and then after that was 2013's Lincoln. Okay, okay. For some reason, I had it in my head that Lincoln was 2012. So, yeah, that tracks. No, wait, okay. wait, no actually, you are correct. I misspoke. Lincoln is 2012. It's 2012. Okay. Well, I mean, originally I thought Lincoln was 2010, so I was not correct. <laughs> but uh, okay. Yeah. So uh, certainly Fableman's for me is like up there. Uh, I think I like Bridge of Spies a little bit more, but Fableman's is the kind of movie where I feel like I could, I could watch again and be like, you know what? This, this does hit me right. I, I do have a couple criticisms, but the basic setup of this movie, we've touched on it, of course, is that this is recounting not just Steven Spielberg's adolescent coming of age story, but really also you, the origin story for him as a filmmaker uh, and some of the things that drive him as a filmmaker, how some of that stuff began. One thing that I think the film avoids wisely is 
being sort of like this is this is how he thought of ET, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, it's certainly not um, doing too much of that. Obviously, there's a little bit because certainly there were influences that Spielberg himself has talked about. Like for example, they don't have a scene where he's watching West Side Story. That would have been annoying. Um, no, nothing like that. Uh, but this movie. It, it balances two main plots. The plot of uh, young Sammy Fableman, who is played by two different actors, mainly played by Gabriel LaBelle. And it's showing him kind of like growing up at, you know, in middle school, high school, shooting his first couple of movies, finding different ways to make the movie work and being creative, but also then navigating, like we said, like bullies and moving to a new place, but also, you know, his, his first love, all that sort of fun, you know, coming of age stuff. It also balances it with the story of his parents. Uh, his parents here are played by Michelle Williams and Paul Dano. And I certainly don't disagree with the idea that the actors are a little bit hit or miss. And and I do disagree with the idea of like, oh, he they're miscast. It's like, well, look, he's casting his parents. Now, I don't know what went into all of that. Did he have the full freedom to cast who he wanted to cast? I don't know. Maybe, probably. He's Spielberg. But certainly, uh, I, I don't well, walk away from it questioning Spielberg's judgment. But I do think that... I, I think Paul Dano works here. I think Michelle Williams kind of botches it. And I think that's where you and I are probably going to have our sharpest disagreement, uh, I guess. But and I, I don't, don't even think a lot of it has to do with Michelle Williams as an actress. I just think that some of the writing here with this character is excruciating. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's Spielberg. I don't know if it's Tony Kushner who co-wrote it. I don't know. But to me, some of it works really well. Some of it does not. And it's kind of hit or miss for me. So, uh, just to touch on your earlier point, um, this role was written at least in part according to Spielberg with Michelle Williams in mind. So I can uh, see that. I mean, if you look yeah. at the photos, she's a dead ringer. But that's kind of what I'm getting at. Is it like, was it the look of it? And also, like, okay, I know Michelle Williams is a good actress. Well, she, I think she looks the part. She can act the hell out of it. I got to have her. But like that doesn't necessarily mean she's right for the part. That doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to be able to bring to it what Spielberg had in his head. But of course, he had it in his head, and, and he went for it, which I respect. But I and, and, and can I say there is a scene in this movie where the young version of actually both of them, but uh, actually, you know what? There is a scene in this movie where the young Fableman, played by the younger actor, I forget his name. But uh, he's like a younger unknown. He brings Michelle Williams, a character, into his like closet to watch a movie. And I mean, Michelle Williams is like mesmerizing in how she sits there with him and communicates with him. It's beautiful stuff. A lot of the tough, trickier stuff with her comes later in the movie, where I just think we lose this character to a degree that I don't think was on purpose. That's all. So, I mean, for as much as you think we're going to disagree about this uh when i saw the film i was initially kind of like as much as i love all this i'm a little kind of uncertain about how i feel about michelle williams uh mainly because i think as you were alluding to she has built her career off of playing these kind of more uh intuitive characters characters who you know have moments of you know great emotional outbursts but they tend to be reserved for like when they're kind of pushed to the brink or manchester like, by the sea probably manchester by best. the sea uh is 
certainly one example of that that I find to be very good. I think the primary example of this, and I believe it's the one that uh, Spielberg uh, took to heart, was Blue Valentine. Okay, yes. Love Blue Yes, Blue love Valentine. Blue Valentine, for sure. Which I think was uh, crucial to her casting in this film, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, but yeah, I mean, the fascinating thing there is that like, yeah, you have her building this career primarily off of, you know, independent films, uh, you know, independent dramas, as well as, uh, you know, noted shows like Dawson's Creek. Dawson's Creek. That's how I uh, was introduced to her. She's, yeah. She's terrific in that show. Too good for it, honestly. But yeah, like even like in some kind of uh, broader performances of hers, like, uh, like Brokeback Mountain. You know, she still has like kind of more reserved uh, demeanor. This is her kind of abandoning that the play, what's quite easily her broadest kind of more outlandish personality. And initially, I kind of pushed back against that because, like, is this kind of miscasting? Is this kind of going against what Michelle Williams does really well? And I, I kind of went back and forth on it. And then I've kind of settled. Well, I still think Paul Dano of the two is the stronger performance. I think. You kind of need that Michelle Williams fire. I think you kind of need that passion to really sell this film because it's so crucial to what he's getting at here, which is that, you know, you have that opening scene where he's going to his first movie ever, which happens to be, you know, in an ironic twist of fate, the, you know, greatest show on earth, uh, you know, and he's waiting in line. Good movie. Lives up to the name. Really? I've heard it's quite yeah. bad. You think it's bad? I've heard it's bad. I've never seen it. Oh, you should watch it. It, uh, it has a lot of charm. I've heard it's one of the weakest uh, Best Picture winners. Mm, I don't think I agree with that. Come on. Well, you can take that up with anyone who said that. <laughs> I can't <laughs> speak on the film. It's, um, not, it's not DeMille's best, but sure. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a, an easy mark. Who knows? Sure. But in any case, you know, opening scene, perfect. Because you have, you know, uh, young Sammy Fableman torn between his two parents, the left side and right side of his brain. His dad's very pragmatic. Like this is what movies are in a most basic sense. Like you have, you know, this, 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 and this from a technical standpoint, but you know, it's not just that, like that's what makes movies work, but it's the emotion that makes them sing. And that's what he gets from his mom. And then the technical prowess, what he gets from his dad, the engineer, and then the artist. And so you kind of need, you know, Danu to be that kind of, reserved emotionally conflicted guy but you need someone who is that very bombastic you know deeply felt emotionally personality and whether you feel michelle williams communicates that or not i think she needs to give that performance and i think you know i it's not my absolute favorite of hers if she wins the oscar for it i'd be like well maybe more of a lifetime achievement thing than like this is her best work but as, as far as like what she brings to the film i think it's so crucial to making this movie hit its emotional beats that I ultimately can't fault it for what it's, for what she's doing and what it's doing with that performance and that character. See, where I come away from it is slightly different, where I think that the movie doesn't nor shouldn't rely too much on Michelle Williams' character in the way that it does. Because to me, I think Gabriel LaBelle is so good in the role. And I think that he is such an he's such an interesting main character that I almost feel like Spielberg shied away from letting him own this movie. I think the movie starts to like lean on him more, but then it dovetails in. Well, now we got to have a big scene with Paul Dano, and now we have to have a big scene with Michelle Williams, and they're gonna like occupy the whole thing. And it's like, 
I think the movie's kind of missing some moments where the actual Spielberg avatar can come in and be a little bit more of a presence. He's such an observer. And I get it. It's part of the well, script. It's part of the idea. But I don't know. I just think that the movie needed a little bit more of sort of that earnestness, that Spielbergian wonder that he does bring to child actors. I think he feels more comfortable doing in movies where the character is not so clearly modeled after him that I think is missing kind of here. He does get one scene where he sees himself filming in a mirror where I was like, yes, there is your movie. There is like, yes, Spielberg, you are getting into it. But then it does it dovetails into now we have Michelle Williams being a manic pixie dream mom for like 10 minutes. Keep using that term, at least in private. Like, <laughs> it, it's not going to make any more sense the more you say it, but I admire that. She's drastic. a manic pixie dream mom. It's true. Okay. Well, I'll let you and Freud figure that one out. Um, <laughs> but in any case, I think I get what you're saying, but I think what uh, what makes it work for me, that performance, is that we get to spend so much time with him in the high school scenes. And that's so crucial Even to that then, though, I, I think he barely mode. talks. He barely interacts. Like, a lot of it is just people yelling at him. And he's just like, not saying anything. And sure. he, he, I get it. He's shy. And like, that's fine. But like, I don't know. I, but I just don't think his, he has a bit of a lack of agency that I think is the mm-hmm. idea but it starts to get grating because it starts to hit the same note over and over again. But I mean, that kind of gets into like the whole point of the film though, is that like for him, it's about him honing that visual style, that voice. And I, I don't necessarily agree with you with that, the, the quiet moments because you have that tremendous scene where he's working through his parenting while he's on set, making that war movie. And he's like, giving the actor the motivation he needs. He's going through all this deep pain, but he's able to transfer it over to yeah. this other, this, you know, amateur. Well, that's actor, what I mean by like, hit or miss. Yeah. Okay. Cause that works really well. But I, I, again, it's like, it's in a sea of scenes where we just sort of watch him not react or not really like intervene or do anything. Like characters point. have to yell at him for him to do anything. And like the whole Judd Hirsch scene, which is great. It's just really like one actor just yelling at him for like 10 minutes and he just barely responds. And like, I don't know, it's fine. It's just, I I think that there is something where I'm like, it's almost like Gabriel Abel isn't being allowed to like work that range a bit. And uh, he, he seems like such a great new talent to me, like really great discovery from Spielberg that similar to Mike face in uh, the West side story. I think was like such a standout in that movie. And I, I hope he is still on the scene because, you know, yeah. Sure. I mean, there's no denying that Spielberg uh, has made a career out of finding great young talent. And I think that's no exception here. And do I think he could have had more scenes where he showcased that? Sure. But I also think that this movie is about him kind of wrestling with the idea of being the observer and someone who is, in his own way, kind of giving agency to his family by filming all these things and kind of controlling the filmmaking and having this kind of authority that seemingly no one else can understand but needs, which is that he can use these skills in a very emotional and practical way, kind of hone these home videos and also uh, to his uh, kind of emotional detriment, change the narrative and kind of keep this, you know, long burden secret that you know is eating up in him but he knows for the sake of the rest of the family and for his sisters that he needs to kind of carry this thing and that feels into a common criticism and something the movie directly addresses which is like why does spielberg kind of feel this need to 
be so kind of uh, sympathetic and empathetic, even to some of the like most despicable people in and outside of his life. And I feel like this movie tackles that without giving away in a very thoughtful and kind of profound way in a way that I feel is giving some deep resolve to, you know, a filmmaker who through this film is searching for things that I think he's always kind of known, but needs to make this film to discover. I, I guess think that's really I guess kind the of struggle for me and beautiful for me. I guess the struggles for me is that at the onset of the movie, I get the sense that Spielberg is chasing some semblance of closure on this story and sharing it with the audience in a way that I really respect and admire him for because he doesn't need to prove himself to anybody. Um, but I think for me, it's just by the time we get to the end of it, I just don't get the sense that the audience or him have gotten that closure. And I think it feels a little bit more of like a friend bringing up something traumatic without actually like really talking about it in a way that moves them forward. It just sort of is like, well, this happened, the movie. And that's how it comes across to me. And I get that, like, for some people, like, I, th I think what what I'm seeing in terms of, like, the positive reactions to this, I can tell that this is really working well and really striking a chord with filmmakers, with artists in general. And I get why, because there are scenes in this where I'm watching it, like, the way that he, as a kid, is figuring out ways to do things. It, it, it's the kind of thing where he is such an artisan like a technical artisan and that's how his brain operates. And I think that's what makes him a really great storyteller uh, in terms of like how he's able to take existing material and just technically blast it to the world in a sensible, relatable way. That's his skill. And I think that the thing that I, I don't think he has a great skill for is the actual like origin of that creativity. There's a reason I think that he hasn't written uh, and I don't want to talk on my ass here, but like, what what are his best movies that he's written? Well, in your opinion, uh, Close Encounters. Didn't he also write uh, ET? Um, yes, yes, or, yes, he did. I, think I was he trying to think if he for... co-wrote it, but no, I, th well, I think he just wrote it. Yeah, he co-wrote Close Encounters, I think, but I think he only wrote he the story. Poltergeist. That's what I was thinking of. Okay, well, that he didn't. Well, officially, he didn't, he didn't direct, direct that. Officially, well, it, it, you know, you can kind of uh, believe what Wait, you want no, to Wait, no, I, I don't think he did write E.T. I thought he wrote the story for it, but he didn't write the screenplay. Yeah, I don't think he has a credit on the screenplay. I'll double check yeah, that, but... I, okay. I think, yeah, I don't think he wrote it. I think, yeah, he directed it, but yes, Close Encounters, you are totally correct. Um, but AI. Okay, I knew there was another one that he wrote. <laughs> There's only one movie I can think of that he's Which, written since Poltergeist. I mean, I, I I was kind of fascinated by how much this movie did make me think of AI, considering that people always <laughs> talk about like, oh, that's like him in a sort of director for hire mode making the long lost uh, Kubrick movie. But like, there is a lot of Spielberg in that movie in a way that I feel like, you know, still kind of being evaluated with time, how personal that movie could be, even though he's making another filmmaker's film in a, in a way. Yes. Um, and you see it in this movie, which I think is really apt, where a lot of the stuff that he's doing as a director, as like a, you know, a student, as like a, a young director, he's not really writing stories here. He's just sort of like taking existing archetypes of movies 
and doing them again. Like that's the whole impetus for like greatest show on earth, right? Is like he's not really like writing something. He is just sort of like focusing on how he could do his own version of it. And that's what I've always respected about Spielberg. I personally don't relate to him, I think, as much as like some other people do. I think a lot of filmmakers will relate to him. Uh, I think a lot of people who want to be filmmakers or go to film school and stuff like that will relate to him because they're directors or they're DPs or they're, they're people who revel in the technical stuff. And I certainly love the technical stuff. I think it's so fascinating, but that's not my primary focus as like a, a lover of film and, you know, as like writing books and stuff. I'm more of like, if you gave me a job in the movie industry, it's screenwriting, it's writing novels. It's like, that is my zone. And that's where I find my art. And so I don't connect as easily, I think to like Spielberg's, you know, like to me, Spielberg is like a unicorn. He fascinates me because our minds work so differently. And I think that he, he is just so like, uh, he's such an admirable sort of, uh, trying to find a good word for him that isn't puffing him up too much, you know, but, uh, no, he's just like, he's just a wonderful, like influence. He's just a wonderful icon of cinema, uh, in, in all the, the best ways, but he's just not somebody that I look to where I think that his writing is anything to write home about, uh, pun intended. So yeah, hopefully that makes sense. I don't, I don't want to like come out of this being like, trying to like take Spielberg down a peg as if I could have even attempted. Well, I mean, I do need to say this, which is that I think maybe you and I are looking for different things in this film, which is fine. I'm not, that's uh, possible. Yeah. I'm not trying to dissuade what you wanted out of the film or what you got out of the film. Um, but yeah, you talk about like closure in a sense that like this film needs to have that like kind of definitive statement uh, made. I guess. And for me, what I find beautiful about the film and what I find really resonant is that it is so searching. It's so open hearted about this, but it is from a clear, you know, master of the craft. And I feel like every decision, you know, from a technical standpoint is, you know, very deliberate. Like it's edited very precisely. The music comes at a very deliberate time in this film. Like that's a, another thing, like the score, you know, where he's so used to like, uh, you know, these John Williams scores and, uh, Spielberg movies being very bombastic and kind of carrying throughout the film. I believe sweeping. the score, uh, yeah, sweeping is a good word for it. I, I believe the score doesn't even actually kick into this movie until like the headlight scene, which is like, I think halfway into the film. Like a lot of this movie is without music in a way that I find so fascinating for Spielberg. Um, and John Williams. He, and, John Williams. and this is his last, uh, I think original score. I think he is working. I think he's doing music for the new Indiana Jones, but I think that's like his last film outside of maybe some star Wars commitments. I can't even tell anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think for me, I guess it's this veteran filmmaker allowing himself to kind of open this wound in a very public and vulnerable way in a very kind of nakedly emotional way, but allowing himself to have that very apparent craft, that very precise filmmaking that he gets from his dad is left side of the brain, but allowing that emotion that, that fluidity, that sense that he could kind of open himself up and be very spontaneous in a way that is, you know, open-hearted and searching and create something that has that sort of messy quality, but has a very precise filmmaking craft. And I think that's what I find so resonant about the film. It's that it can be both Yeah, that he gets that from his mom. And, yeah, and he, yeah, he gets that from his mom, and that's how he's honoring his parents in this film. Like he is doing the both at the same time. That's it's been a beautiful thing. Film. Yeah, and it makes, a, I think, a tremendous film. 
that that to me is where, where it just there there's something he presents about his mother though where and maybe I agree with him about this. I think his mother is an artist in a way that he recognizes he isn't. And that is that like she is able to not just spontaneously like you're saying, you know, create something or adapt to something on the fly, but she is able to I think tap into what it means to be human and the messiness of humanity in a way that I get a, at least this film tries to get across that it feels alien to him. It feels a little bit like he doesn't connect with that. You know, you see it in those scenes where his family is just like, you're like our mom. And he's, he hesitates because he doesn't necessarily see himself that way. I think to what you're saying, he sees himself a little bit more in his father in terms of that, you know, being so acute to technology and using it in, in order to like accomplish his goals. And so to what you're saying, I, I think that the closure I think I'm missing is him just sort of like coming away from this, not just honoring his parents, which I think is like a great thing. But I think like if that's the case, this movie has a very weird ending to me because it kind of ends and I just feel like it, it feels like the ending to a different movie for me. Um, I'm not sure why I feel that way. Maybe it would require another look. But I think it does. It is something that holds me back a bit from really having my heart in this, and that—that's kind of what it comes down to. Is that I—I always felt outside of this movie. I never felt like it really brought me into it. Maybe that's some of my own personal stuff. Honestly, I, I don't think it's that impressive of a movie, uh, technically, which is kind of ironic. Um, I know that this is the same cinematographer Spielberg has worked with across his career since I think the nineties, um, Janu Kaminsky, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't necessarily find this to be that impressive of a film to watch. Honestly, there, there were a lot of sequences that I thought were really, really good, really stellar. There were some where I thought were a little bit rote. Um, some that were a little bit drawn out needlessly. Uh, and then, yeah, last thing I'll say is that I, I don't love Seth Rogen in this. I, Maybe people will disagree. I, I don't know. He kind of stuck out to me in the wrong way. I, I, I think in a movie where you have everybody else kind of just like kicking ass, like uh, Julia Butters, like who takes like a role that is very small, you know, but is able to like, you know, because we saw her in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? She's able to take a small role and just like really amplify it way beyond what's asked. Uh, and you also have, of course, I think Paul Dano is terrific in this. And Michelle Williams has several scenes that I think are fantastic. And uh, Judd Hirsch, I mean, there you go. But And then there's somebody else that I want to give away uh, toward the end of the film who I was just like enamored. I, I, you should have heard me gasp in the theater when we saw his face. But, um, oh, you didn't know he was going to be in it? I didn't know. Oh, That's really? the That's beauty, fine. I guess, I wish of I... uh, avoiding. Oh, man. Well, how did you how did you know he was in it with it oh, it's been it widely reported uh okay yeah i just i just had no idea like you know people knew I mean, better than to tell me about it but that's the thing is that like uh i mean it wasn't reported who he was playing but it was reported that he was in the film and then eventually okay. it was like what it, it was an i didn't know secret. judd hirsch was in it okay when i saw okay. judd hirsch i was like hell yeah let's yeah. go um but no but with the that cameo without giving anything away yeah i i kind of wish i didn't know about it 
because it would have been more rewarding. But I knew, like, not only did I know the cameo, I've, I'd even heard that story about the filmmaker he's playing before. So, like, what? That that's was, like the best. That's one of the best parts of the movie when you start to see the. Uh, <laughs> I was like, case. oh my gosh, are we but actually gonna? Okay. Here's the. I guess this is where we kind of start to. Uh, don't start. Where we continue to uh, diverge is that, you know. I had honestly kind of forgotten while I was watching a movie that he was going to be in it. And so there's like mm-hmm. a, a point where it's like uh, Sammy and his mom in the kitchen. I was like, oh, I'm fine with this being the end of the film. And then it's like, oh, it's still going. I wonder. Was, and then like, it hit me. It's like, oh, yeah, we haven't got to X part yet. And I got excited <laughs> all over again. And for me, um, I, I got to wildly, dis- sorry, wildly disagree um, with your uh thoughts on the ending because i i found the ending to be fantastic like the last Uh, shot i think is great and i think the last scene is i think the last shot is fine i i don't want to but i i think that i thought that was i think it's perfect it's It's a cool moment it's him acknowledging that like it's twofold it's him seeing that you know like he can inspire he can move on he can kind of you know be this type person for other filmmakers but it's also saying like i'm still learning i'm still adapting i'm 70 but i'm still going to keep uh, you know, changing and moving. And I find that to be very uplifting and very beautiful. And it's done in a funny, you know, memorable way. And uh, yeah, I thought that the ending was great. Um, I do like that part. It's just, it's less about the last shot. To me, it's more about what the ending is doing as a story. That That's all it comes down to. Okay. Um, I think that that same really great effective last shot works it's just the stuff that leading up to that i just felt like it was really kind of missing the thread of where we were before but again i am uh, nitpicking to a certain extent yeah disagree um no i just i i mean not i'm not gonna say it's like you know completely seamless and that's you know without rote moments as you said like i'm it is i mean it's, it's spielberg he has those you know ingrained in all of his films in some respect or another i guess for me where it works is that he has the technical skill and the adept emotionality that you know has carried throughout all of his best films i think this is no exception of course i think it's key and crucial to that you know it's it's him searching through that it's him even kind of acknowledging that like he might be a lesser person for you know looking for these things as a filmmaker as opposed to actually living in it uh you know like that scene you mentioned uh you know where he's like you know at at one of the most foundational moments of his life and he can't stop thinking about how he would you film it as opposed to be living in it is great. And I, what I find so inspiring and fascinating about that uh, is uh, I keep referencing that um, I, I listened to the director's cut conversation. It was like a Q and a he did with Paul Thomas Anderson. And he said, and this is what surprised me is that that shot that I think you even mentioned later or sorry, mentioned earlier was improvised on the set. Like he didn't have that plan. That was just something he's like, Oh, I think we should do this on the set. And I feel like that's the stuff where, that's where the improvisation comes in. That's like the, oh, yeah, that's where he that shines. Yeah. And yeah. And that's, I feel like that's something that gets kind of overshadowed with the uh, Spielberg's careers that like, you know, people can forget that like jaws works because it's a miracle. Like if you know, the production of that film was, it a works disaster. because of the setbacks or his reaction to the setbacks. Right. And that's, you know, the dad side coming through, but it's also, you know, like the fact that he is able to improvise and do all these things, you know, it's like something that's where it's like, when you hear stories where he's like, Oh, how'd you do this? How'd you do this? He's just like, well, we were on set and I had this idea and we made it work. I mean, that's like, you know, yeah, the that's beauty the, his dad has filmmaking. a whole yeah. line of dialogue about that. Right. He's right. like, Oh, that's what you get from me. And yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't, to me, I just find that great. I think it's, tremendous it's I mean, the spirit just, of filmmaking yeah, yeah. it's something I that i could never you know it's something that i watch with admiration sure 
it's not my personality. I'm not like a sort of, to me, setback just makes me upset. (laughs) But uh, I love that. I love that there are people talented like Spielberg out in the world who were just able to like every problem is an opportunity. Yes. And I think that that is such an admirable skill. It's a rare skill. It's what marks you as I think a, a true visionary, you know, a lot of ways there's some people like ideas are cheap, you know, uh, being able to write a really great story is not a, the hardest thing in the world because I think everybody has a story in them. It's just a measure of how honest you're able to let yourself be and how hardworking you are enough to make that story come out in the best way. But to me, the kind of stuff that Spielberg does, that's like a once in a generation sort of talent. That's just not, it's just, it's just not something that comes easy. And it comes from like a passion and a drive that like, I think is extremely rare, but also ex- just amazing to see when it comes out. So uh, it makes me think about like this movie makes me think about the people in the world who didn't, you know, have all these things work out for them who could have right. been, you know, a Spielberg, but because of circumstances outside their control, were never able to make their mark. And uh, there's a little bit of a sadness to that, uh, you know, sure. but certainly it, it's great at least to revel in the success stories because they do exist. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, I will say, I mean, if I, if I could be critical of the film, I do kind of wish for as much as he's able to be messy and searching and vulnerable throughout the film, I do kind of wish he allowed his ego to kind of go down a little bit and allow himself to be more messy as a filmmaker. Like there's so many moments in this, like just from the onset where he's just like, wow, spiel or that's Sammy. You'd like already, you know, a little uh, master of the craft. He's like already like excelling when he's like early on. And I get part of it's just like, you know, it's Spielberg. Like he's obviously going to be great, you know, in some respect or another. If, if he wasn't, he wouldn't be Spielberg. And also it's like, you know, he's earned the right to kind of do that too with this film. But I also, I guess for me, I kind of wish it kind of earned some of those filmmaking moments a little bit more if he kind of allowed the craft to initially be a little bit messier. And then like he you know, as he goes through his traumatic thing, his filmmaking gets better and better and better. And that's kind of there a little bit, but I wish I was a little bit more pronounced in the film. You kind of see it with the camp stuff and he kind of frames it of like, yeah, if his heart's not in it, (laughs) you know, it's just going to be kind of rote. It's Um, also still like, he has like that scene with her dancing in the thing where it's like, even when he's like not inspired, he still makes great stuff. I don't know. Yeah. That was a weird scene um, where he's, filming his mom with the i mean you mentioned freud earlier and you know there was and even but, like his sister is just like uh 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 like, well i mean to be to his credit i mean he was even initially like i don't know if i want to film this and seth rogan's like do it do it she'll hey no you don't. no it's not that he's reluctant it's just more of like oh yeah there's not enough light and yeah. the light is what's uh, kind of i think that's his, his excuse i think he, he he wants to be nice he's like i don't know dude this is a little weird I, like, I didn't get that sense, mm, but okay. Whatever. Uh, push back into Rogan comments. I thought he was pretty good in this. Actually, I thought he was more than pretty good. I thought he was quite good. Uh, I think he is of the main actors involved, probably the most limited in terms of what he you know, can do as an actor. But I thought this movie played to his strengths quite well. And I thought he has a really touching scene with uh, young Sammy midway yeah, through the film. And I think that shouldn't be discounted. I discount it. <laughs> and that's your right but i can't say i approve 
Yeah, I just I just didn't buy it. I mean, there are a couple of scenes where he's Uncle Benny, and it's just kind of like, okay, they're kind of fun. They're built to be fun. But yeah, when the dramatic stuff came in with him, I was not quite convinced. Um, oh, but I get it. I get the appeal. Um, okay. Well, the Fablemans. Obviously, we have our disagreements, but I don't think we have as big of a disagreement that we can agree that it's worth watching, it's worth checking out, and it's certainly... It's certainly a movie. I'm 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 glad that Spielberg made this, and I, I'd have to believe that you agree with that. So um, it just seemed yeah. like it was something he needed to get off his chest and I mean, uh, power he, to him. He described it as a forty million dollar therapy appointment, and that's <laughs> certainly it. I think, and I I don't know. I just to me, I guess, like I said, I guess I don't need it to be. You know, it can be cathartic without having closure. Like I think he's finding what he needs to find. I think he's in a better place because of the film. And I'm closure is a that. spectrum. Sure. You're never going to have full closure. Sure. But I don't know. I just, I feel like a lesser film would have tried to find that closure. And I think he allows himself to be open while still being cinematic and controlled in what he's trying to do and say. And I think that's just a sign of a great filmmaker. And you know, that, yeah. If I'm being honest, to me, I want the Spielberg movie of like after this movie. Or even like part of the epilogue moving into it. Because to me, the stuff I love about Spielberg's story is the Jaws stuff. It's dual. It's like, I want that movie next. I know it's not going to happen, but like, I don't know. I just find Spielberg's 20s to be such a fascinating time. Because those stories are so rich in the spirit of innovation and hard work. And and this movie has that, obviously, but all I'm saying is Fableman's cinematic universe. Uh, let's do it. But no, I, I genuinely, I, I want an actual like Spielberg, True to Blue. Like, I, I want some kind of like dive into dive because Jaws. I, mean, I would be surprised at some point we get the making of Jaws. Same way I imagine at some point we'll get the making of the first Star Wars movie. It's just we have stuff like that already. Sure. Um, it's more to me like the thread of Spielberg's trajectory as a director, because like, yeah, again, I, I think like the story, like the duel of it all is just such an interesting, no one expected that movie to be as good as it was. They gave it to Spielberg. It was a TV movie and he suddenly found a way to elevate the TV movie to such an interesting degree. And now the TV movie, the Netflix movie, as it were, is trouncing the Fablemans at the box office. What a turn of events. Well, I mean, not only that, but like, you know, like we said, he's the creator of what we define as the blockbuster and the blockbuster right. season. And that whole, uh, you know, movie system kind of ate this movie whole. And so he's kind of, uh, you know, being eaten by the whale of his own creation in some respect or another. Right. He tried so hard, you know, to break out of that blockbuster box that he put himself in. Do I don't you, think that he's really put himself fully into a blockbuster, like really wanted to make it something special since War of the Worlds, maybe? That's I the mean, thing. well, Kingdom of the Crystal Was this heart in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? I don't think so. Ready Player One? He couldn't care less. Is West Side Story a blockbuster? Nah. I'd say probably. Um, it's no, edging. I, I mean, that's the thing is that like, I, I don't... I mean, I'm sure he would have loved if this movie, you know, made all the money in the world, but I feel like he's not really expecting this to be, you know, like, 
one of his highest grossing films. If he wanted to just make a high grossing film, he just would have made that fifth Indiana Jones movie that James Mangold's making. Like, I think he deliberately chose to make this movie because he wanted yes. to find that, you know, he's, he's reached those heights already. He's gotten there. He's gotten those Oscars. If he gets an Oscar for this or not, I don't know if that's like the most important thing. I think the fact they made the film is the, the achievement that he's searching for. I agree with that. And uh, yeah, that is certainly, I think, to me, one of the driving things of his career. I, I just think that he wants to make all the movies that he never got a chance to make. You know, I think they were talking about this on the uh, the Blank Check podcast. You know, like that that's where Spielberg is at, right? Like, and that's why like Ready Player One felt like such a weird blip. It's like, why make that movie? You know, it, 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 to me, West Side Story, he always wanted to make a musical. Perfect opportunity. And he did a really good job with it. I think the limitations with West Side Story had a lot to do with like the source material. That's that's a tough thing to adapt. It's a downer of a movie. Uh, and then, of course, this, where I just think he's always wanted to make this kind of personal film. I know he has a bunch of stuff in the tank. He's he said it before. He has all kinds of other movies he's always wanted to do. And he has an opportunity to do it pretty soon. So yeah, I mean, you can do whatever uh, he wants. Well, the, the big one he wants to do is he still wants to do a Western, which makes sense given the ending of this film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think the next one he's going to do is a bullet film with Bradley Cooper. I think that's uh, been announced as his next project, which yeah, also feels kind of odd for, you know, coming off of the Fablemans, but do, he can do whatever he wants to do. You know what kind of Spielberg movie I think would kick? Do like a Tarantino-esque movie, Spielberg. Just do it. Okay. Just to see if you can. What kind of like a like a capture if you can? Well, kind of like a Grindhouse, kind of like a like a Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs kind of thing. Okay. He could do it. You don't think so? It's not that I don't think he can or can't. I just don't quite follow like this train. Like a gritty crime thing with a lot of cussing. Yeah, well, I do love uh, Munich, which is a lot grittier and uh, harder than his other films. And I kind of would love if he went back to like making something just so adult. Yeah. And Another un- Tony Kushner. mistaken. Is that was that the first of their collaborations together? Good question. Is it that uh, yeah, West Side Story in this Minority Report? They didn't. Huh. I don't think so. Yeah, I think you're right. But okay, Will Ashton. It's time for the Rotten Tomatoes game. You knew it was coming. And uh, this could be a tough one. could be an easy one. Let's find out. Well, Ashton, we have 213 reviews counted for this movie so far. Fewer than Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. But what say you? What do you think the critical score is on this? I think it's high. I think most people, uh, most critics, I mean, are probably enjoying the film, though maybe not... Uh, as much as like the overwhelmingly positive response to West Side Story and maybe a few other Spielberg movies, I could see based on the reaction. Some people are a little bit more critical of the film, but not enough to tank it altogether. I'm going to say 87%. Way off. Way off too high or way off too low? Too low. Too, too low. low. Okay. It is the same as Glass Onion. 93%. So 93%. Oh. We have a double 93 on the show this week, but could be a, could it be a quadruple? Because we had double 93s for Glass Onion for audience score. What about the audience score for the Fable ones? Uh, well, we have 250-plus verified ratings. What do you got? Uh, I'm going to say 81%. That's actually really close. You're one off. Are you too low, though, or are you too high? 
I think I'm a little too low. I'm going to say 82%. There you go. Got it. 82%. And I kind of get it. I think like it is a long movie. And uh, it is, I, I, I could see some people kind of watching it and being a little bit like, it's not the best. I certainly came out of it like that. Um, but yeah, I'm double checking. Yeah, it's 151 minutes. So yeah, also like Glass Onion, two hours and, uh, well, this is a little longer, two hours and 30 minutes. Glass Onion was two or 200, my gosh, two hours and 20 minutes. I can't talk. Uh, but okay, what about Cinema Score, Will? What do you think the cinema score is for this one? We do have it. Um, a B? No, higher. Higher. Okay, A minus. Higher. A plus. <laughs> no A. A. Okay. <laughs> you went too high. <laughs> That's interesting, though, right? Because I would have probably guessed like a B plus or A minus based on the eighty-two percent. But no, I mean, the folks in Vegas were like, "This is cinema." So there you go. He's just like us, taking a bet on life, baby. <laughs> Following his dreams. Yeah. All right. We'll finish off with Letterboxd. Uh, now on Letterboxd.com, far fewer than Glass Onion have logged it. Glass Onion, okay. we were in the 80,000s. Yeah. This is 27,000. Makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, it hasn't been seen nearly as much. However, Will, unlike Glass Onion, this is in the top 250 of Letterboxd, ratings-wise. Not only that, it's one of the highest rated we've talked about all year. Um, it's 174. Now, we've talked about, a, I think, everything or everywhere all once. That's way higher, but that's like the exception. So that's surprising, isn't it? What do you think, though? Because Letterboxd, I mean, it's a website built for Spielberg fans, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, zero to five, what's the average rating in your, your guess? Uh, it's 4.5. That's a bit too high. I get why you would guess that high, because you know, uh, just look at that score. Look at that. Look at that. One seventy four. It's a bit lower though. It's four point two. But four point two. That's still a lot Damn. higher than we normally get to. Yeah. Uh, no fibbing. I was gonna guess four point two, but then you were talking all this like it's one of the highest grossing <laughs> or highest rated movies. Don't uh, listen to me, watch. And I was like, dang, it must be higher than that. Like, and I was thinking, like, oh, I guess it's like four point five. But no, I guess you should have gone with my initial guess. Yeah, my plan worked. Um, and you know what's funny? Despite having so low of a view count, way more people I know watched on Letterboxd than Glass Onion. I'm seeing it all over the place. We have friends of the show who watched it, loved it. Kimber Myers, Emma Sasek, they gave it really high scores. But, uh, I mean, we did have Isaac Feldberg, our buddy, uh, who gave it two stars. I don't know if you saw this. Uh I know Isaac, he loves, he loves to stir the pot a little bit. He's one of my favorite contrarians. Um, you want me to read Isaac Feldberg's review of Ashen? Can he stand it? No, I was actually curious to hear what he had to say about it. Here's what he said. Spielberg, disguising his hack work as his most deeply personal story, a la Branagh's Belfast, The Fablemans reshapes a populist filmmaker's origins into an archetypal coming-of-age story, in a manner that, to risk being reductive, plays like cutting crusts off his sandwiches. Outside of bludgeoning the audience to death with its core themes, expounded upon in embarrassing and gratingly on-the-nose speeches written by Tony Kushner, with Oscar acting reels in mind, the film retains such emotional distance from the reality of his characters that they resemble either figments or cartoons scene to scene, and move the film's reflections on sacrifice, self-possession, and the cinema 
as a means of seeing oneself into a vague, yet-on-the-nose space, i.e., one too emotionally bald and narratively nebulous to be of use. Yeah, there's a little bit more to go off of here, but I think you get the idea. Um, I, I, I highly disagree with this review. Uh, but, you know, that's his right. <laughs> there you go. And, and some people commented on it, and they were just sort of like, thank you, I feel like I'm the only one who, you know, found this underwhelming. But, you know, that's the cinema, baby. That's the game. That is the cinema. You know, I I will always I'll end up I will always respect Isaac's opinion, whether I agree with it or not. Sam, I will always respect what he has to say. In this That's case, I can't say even I when agree. I disagree. I know he's being true to himself, and yeah, I love him for it. All right, well, is that our show? That's it. Let's get out of here. Yeah, it's gotten long. <laughs> I gotta get to bed. You're right. We got a we got another twenty minutes in the tank. Uh, just kidding. If you want to keep talking, I'll keep talking. But I mean, <laughs> nah, nah. I'm ready to wrap we will be back later this week, talk uh, after sun, maybe a couple other things. And as always, if, we, if you feel like we missed something that you really wanted to hear us talk about, we're always open to suggestions. Uh, we're just kind of winging it, let's be honest. Mm, yeah. uh, hit us up, uh, email us, social media, whatever you want to do. It's in the show notes, links to how you can get in touch. Be sure to do that. But uh, we'll be back soon for more reviews as usual. So from the Internet California, I'm John Agroni. And for Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Wes. See you next time.